0: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal History. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. Hey, lethal listeners, Tig here.
4: Last season on Lethal Lit, you might remember I came to Hollow Falls on a mission clearing my Aunt Beth's name and making sure justice was finally served. But I hadn't counted on a rash of new murderers tearing apart the town. My mission put myself and my friends in danger. Though it wasn't all bad. I'm gonna be real with you, Tig. I like you. But now, all signs point to a new serial killer in Hollow Falls. If this game is just starting, you better believe I'm gonna win. I'm Tig Torres, and this is Lethal Lit.
3: Catch up on Season 1 of the hit murder mystery podcast, Lethal Lit, a Tig Torres mystery, out now. And then tune in for all new thrills in Season 2, dropping weekly starting February 9th. Subscribe now to never miss an episode. Listen to Lethal Lit on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Here's to the great American settlers, the millions of you who settled for unsatisfying jobs because they pay the bills. Of course, there is something else you could do if you got something to say.
4: Conquer your New Year's resolutions with the Before Breakfast podcast. In each bite-sized daily episode, you'll learn how to make the most of your time with practical tools to help you feel less busy and get more done. Listen to Before Breakfast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Hey, everybody. Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. What's? 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 I'm Robert <laughs> Evans. This is It Could Happen Here, the show that asks what's, and also other questions, um, more 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 meaningful questions than that, about, you know, things falling apart, fixing them, all that good stuff. With me today, uh, as usual, uh, Garrison and Chris, and as is currently unusual, but will be more usual every preceding month after this one, uh, our good friend, St. Andrew. St. Andrew, take a bow. Hey, what's happening?
6: Bow. not quite a bow, (laughs)
5: but it's fine. Uh, How how are you doing today, Andrew?
6: I'm good. I'm good. You know, it's rainy. It's chill. It's better (laughs) than the kind of hot weather we've been getting lately, so I'm good. Yeah. It's raining
5: and chill here, but that's seven months of the year. Uh, (laughs) I think there's slightly different uh, uh, climates in Portland, Oregon, and Trinidad.
6: Probably. I've been told.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we have uh, had you on a couple of weeks back to talk about Solar Punk. And we're going to be bringing you back on uh, about twice a month to talk about um, whatever the hell you want to talk about. And so yeah. I'm, I'm going to now <laughs> hand the episode over to you Um, and, and trust like a little lamb that you'll lead me somewhere beautiful and filled with good forage.
6: Ah, yes. Sunshine and rainbows, the promised mm-hmm. land. You yeah. know? Okay, so I think we've all noticed that uh, the environmentalist movement kind of sucks. And I kind yeah, of mean jumping into it kind of raw. Sucks in has not done the things that, Has not accomplished, has been around (laughs) for like over half a century or actually really more than that. And, you know, where are we now? (laughs) Yeah. You know, Um, of course, we do have to confront and acknowledge that like there's the issue where oil companies literally suppressed a whole bunch of information and, you know, co-opted like a lot of the earlier movements and stuff. But we've kind of known for a while now. And we are still here, so it's like, what gives? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think there's a kind of an interesting phenomenon that I wanted to talk about today, um, known as soft climate change denial. So, are y'all familiar with that, or what do y'all think it is based on first impressions?
5: Um, I mean, yeah, I, I've heard the term. I, I would think it's sort of, um, I mean, a number of different things, including the idea that, like. Uh, well, there's nothing we can do, so nothing should be done. You know. Hmm. Yeah,
6: yeah. What about, what about you, Garrison?
7: Yeah, most most of my understanding of the term is like someone like saying they like know that climate change is a thing, uh, like they they recognize that, but they are kind of more in denial of what solutions can be done to really change anything. That's generally right, my right. understanding of the term when I see it, like, online or something.
8: Yeah. What about you, Chris? Yeah, I usually see it with... It's, like... It's usually in the context of people, you know, in the US, there's the whole... Um, there's, there's whole political factions whose entire thing is saying, like, we believe in science, and then <laughs> they'll go talk about, like, how much they believe in climate change, and then two seconds later, the, they turn um, around and they're, like, signing for The law and sign liberals, authorizations. Right? Yeah. <laughs> So that, that that that's my understanding of it,
6: right? Yeah, yeah. So, according to everyone's favorite source, um, Wikipedia, mm-hmm. soft climate change denial is a state of mind acknowledging the existence of global warming in the abstract, while remaining to some extent impartial, psychological or intellectual denialism about its reality or impact. And something I've spoken about in my channel in my most recent video where I was talking about the different um, facets of solarpunk, you know, what solarpunk is, what it needs, um, things that could probably potentially drag down the solarpunk movement, and things that people have been using to try to drag it down, because solarpunk is kind of building in popularity, and with anything that builds in popularity, there are attempts from all sorts of angles to co-opt it and to repackage it and commodify it and all those things. So... I've kind of noticed with the soul punk phenomenon that there's this effort by people who profess to care about the climate and stuff to try to push it away from more radical directions towards something more appealing and appeasing to the status quo and to the system. Um, and I mean, according to the Wikipedia definition, you know, it's they call it a state of mind. But I think it's also like an implicit philosophy that undergoes like, entire groups and entire movements, you know. So, like, for example, obviously, you know, it affects individuals where, you know, people will um, miscalculate its risks and think that clim- um, climate change is just extra storms or something. Um, but then there also, like, people or really the movements that would neglect its urgency with just these platitudes and these... Um, directionless actions that just serve like this kind of middling reformism um like they underestimate the extent of social change required to like mitigate climate change so they basically don't seek to change the status quo but just to sort of tweak it ever so slightly so like capitalism with a carbon tax or something yeah um and then of course there are people who kind of straddle that that fence, or maybe it's more of a spectrum between soft climate change denial and hard climate change denial, where they might overestimate the extent of scientific uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So they might think that, oh, well, you know, um, yeah, global warming's happening, but we don't exactly know uh, how much it's, it's going to change the climate or how much it's impacting our lives and that kind of thing. So they basically turn it into something that is still up for debate. You know, and that's why I say it kind of straddles that line between soft line and hard line, because obviously the hard climate change nihilists, they're just like, oh, well, you know, it doesn't exist. Or if it does exist, humans don't cause it. If humans do cause it, there's nothing we can do. That kind of thing. Have you all had like experiences with soft climate change denial, like in your own personal organizing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I I, I would say so. I've
5: encountered. um, I mean... It's kind of a thing you encounter constantly in American politics because it's it's really like often times your best option uh in in terms of like it's that or the people who say that talking about climate change is socialism.
7: Yeah.
8: <laughs> you know, I so I, I I was an environmental studies major for most of college and then I decided not to do it and then I got like a minor instead because it was like one class off and long story but you know th- it, it was interesting seeing it there because like you know it, the, 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 there were basically like two possible reactions to learning that one was like people who you know okay one was you get incredibly depressed and that's what i did or and then the, <laughs> the second one was people would you know and these are people who like actually you know you know, I mean, these are verbal studies majors, right? Like, these people had spent a lot of time studying this stuff. And they kind of, like... I don't know. It was just almost like, like this kind of intellectual retreat where... You you could see people basically just like convincing themselves that like somehow this would be okay, and they'd like I don't know it, people would just they get like completely obsessed with like electoral maps, and you're like no 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 okay okay if, if if we win exactly this number of seats in this year, then like uh we can we can start doing carbon credits or like I don't know it, it was it was it was really interesting to watch because it was like it was it was I mean because I, like I think I think there's, there's there's like there's very there's bad faith versions of it. And then I think there's also versions of it yeah. that are just sort of like people Genuine. do not want to accept, yeah, like the the what's necessary to stop this, and so they sort
6: of like
2: <laughs> that,
6: vatic. or they can't even really like think about what's necessary, yeah, because yeah. because of how the education system works. And mm-hmm. trust me, I could go on like long rants about the education system. Yeah, <laughs> it really, it really, really, um, it really limits people's ability to think outside of like this very, very strict box. Possibilities, Because, you know, so much is left out of, um, for example, history classes. And so much is left out of um, really all the subjects. There's this very clear um, ideology that you're expected to come out of the education system with. And so even when you reach, you know, academia and higher education and stuff, you're still stuck with that mode of thinking. And even as you're presented with all this new information, because brain can't really, like, handle, like, the great extent of what climate change is. You know, it kind of retreats into this sort of simple kind of, oh, we just need to vote because voting is all I know. Voting is all I've been told to do. Voting is politics, and politics is voting. That's the extent of it, right?
7: Yeah, it's like this Mm -hmm. weird form of (laughs) self-preservation that people need to do in order to kind of, like, keep their... Keep them from, in in their mind, you know, like spiraling out of control. Because this is the only thing that you know they have. They need to focus on their own life right now and their own current problems. And if they think about this, this like large looming threat too much, it just freaks you out, right? And you you have, if in order to in order to just keep going on with your life, a lot of people like segment off this type of thing in their own brain, so that you know manifests in a lot of cases in this kind of soft denial, so that you can just keep on going.
6: Yeah, yeah. And I see it with, with friends, and I see it with family. You know, obviously there are the handful of people who still, at least in my experience, who still deny climate change. But then there's, like, a bigger portion of people whose whole understanding of climate change is just this, oh, well, we just need to recycle, and we just need to, like, switch to electric vehicles. And yeah, once we do that, you know, we'll be okay. Um, we just tweak a couple of things, get some solar panels, and... Yeah, you know, the understanding of it has been completely limited to, like, this very restricted conversation Yeah, that is, like, um, basically cultivated by certain interest groups and certain um, lobbying groups and that kind of thing, you know?
7: Yeah, it's, it's only a certain amount of change is allowed, and that's what we're allowed to think. So that's what we're like shown for examples of in like media and pop culture or whatever, right? So this is, you know, this is kind of what, um, you know, like all of like the YouTubers who got money from Bill Gates when Bill Gates wrote his climate book, right? right? All, all of the things that they were talking about is like is like this kind of stuff, because yeah. the only way for Bill Gates to keep his money while you know talking about climate change is to have these kind of half assed. Like solutions that are actually deny the impending reality and deny that no, the only way to actually fix it is by taking all of his money, um, which he's not yeah. as as big a fan of. <laughs>
6: <laughs> yeah, I mean, have you all seen the Kurskasakt video on <laughs> climate change and economy coming what
5: video on climate
6: change? in a nutshell. Yeah. It's like this. Uh, YouTube
5: could, channel. Could you,
7: could you spell like. that, or, so people can find it. <laughs> oh <Or> gosh <push>. um, <laughs> no, but people will. I think it's, people people know. I, th- I think a lot, a lot of people know what it is. Or you can just search in a nutshell on YouTube. In a nutshell, um, it's
6: K U R. I'm, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. K U R Z. No, it's K U R G. Was it K U R Z? Yeah, I think it's K U R Z G E S
9: A
7: A G T.
6: AGT, oh right
7: it is it is a it is a weird one uh but what what what, what are you talking about the uh can you fix cl- climate change video?
6: yeah yeah okay, yeah where the whole thesis is basically vote with your ballot and vote with your wallet
7: yeah that's the you only know? thing that you're really allowed,
6: Those allowed are the options. to do, right
7: yeah and I I believe this is one of the videos sponsored by they Bill put Gates. this
6: um Yeah, they did. Yeah, it was. And then they had this whole line about some people think we need to change like our system from climate change, from from capitalism. But we're not so sure about that. We don't know the answer. So they basically like shrugged towards or maybe it's problem with the system, but they basically gave it no attention, you know, but their channel is literally about like going deep into research about things. So it's very obvious that if they spent no time like doing any kind of research into like why people have the systemic critique, that obviously bill gates hand is very deep in their pockets
7: yeah you know i i cuz i believe that i believe the researchers actually kind of know that but they're not they just can't <laughs> say it they're anything. not allowed to yeah you know? and i mean like it's, yeah it's, i think it's, they're
5: it's, making the 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 bargain a lot of people make where they're like okay well if we can push for you know the immediate necessary changes uh we can worry about you know stuff like that later on it's it's just important to get something done um and so we'll compromise and we'll not Will not call for what we know is actually necessary to to deal with the problem. We'll just we'll just go with a half measure because at least it's something. We got to do something now, right? See, the thing that's always been very
8: grim about that to me is like you look about how how that plays out, right? And it's always like, well, okay, so our our half measure is going to be uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna just like put 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 a monetary value on indigenous forests so that governments can like steal them and get paid for taking the land and it's never stuff like why don't we like make more marshes which is you know if, if you're gonna talk about stuff that like could actually be done right it's like okay well look, but we'll do remarshing do we want like that's that, that stuff like is easy and doesn't need you know you don't literally have to overthrow capitalism to get people to like restore marshes but it never happens because this that's you know the whole basis of the sort of soft denialism stuff is not actually You know, it's not actually an attempt to solve climate change. They just want to make money. And it's extremely grim.
6: Yeah. Yeah. There's this video that uh, the storyteller, this YouTuber, um, he did recently on co-opting movements. And he was explaining that um, with the march in Washington, right, during the civil rights movement, um, that was an organic movement that, you know, the people had come up with. Right, but obviously, a mass movement, the FBI isn't going to just sit back and let that happen, right? So they brought in these leaders. Um, they're called the Big Six, and um, the storyteller was explaining that basically they were paid to co-opt the march to basically become its figureheads and its leaders. They hadn't organized it themselves, but they came on afterwards and became the leaders of the march and read the speeches that they were supposed to read and that kind of thing and so that sort of mass movement was basically defanged like that i mean obviously reforms were made and you know civil rights um, act was passed but then you know after all that happened and mlk got disillusioned by the system as a whole and wanted to start pushing even harder against capitalism and, and whatnot that's when oh, well, coincidentally, he got a bullet, you know? So I think it's interesting that these movements, they're able, they're, they're, they're comfortable with these movements up to a certain point point. Um, and comfortable with these leaders going in these certain directions up to a certain point. But then when you actually start posing a threat to this other school, that's when, you know, you b- become a problem in like a major way. Not to say that MLK wasn't a threat to the status quo. But just to say that, you know, um, there was – they have certain limits that they don't want people to cross.
5: Yeah, capitalism – one of the things that's re- that makes it such a robust system in terms of its ability to to not get overthrown or destroyed is that – up to a certain point it loves dissent it loves anti-capitalism because you can market that very easily like there's a lot of money in 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 anti-capitalism there's a lot of money in being critical of the system it's just when you hit a certain point um then it then it becomes you know the CIA or the FBI or some uh, uh, person who's been um convinced to shoot you's problem like it, it th- th- there's a there's a point at which Uh, that's no longer accepted but uh, quite a bit of criticism and even like agitation to change or end the system can be accepted because it's monetizable and speaking of that you know what time it is
6: time for an (laughs) ad it sure (laughs) is
5: it absolutely is oh boy time for an ad or or that's the CIA at the door We, we won't know until we come back from break ah we're back It wasn't the CIA this time. Good news, guys.
6: Thankfully. I mean, the fact that they flew all the way down just to meet me, I'm honored, Mm -hmm. honestly. (laughs) Oh, I mean, they've gone to Trinidad for less. (laughs) Oh, that's true. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But like we were saying, right, there's this whole issue of these movements being able to go in a certain direction only up to a certain point. Um, And I think it's something that Peter Galilus also talks about in how nonviolence protects the state in the sense of, you know, these people are able to, once they get a certain level of attention, all of a sudden, you know, you're invited to speak at these events and you're invited to go this place and that and you basically get consumed into the, workshop machine the NGO machine the climate conference machine kind of thing so you end up with all these figures these organizers these activists who go from like genuinely trying to organize their communities and their spaces and then before you know it they're like at such and such conference because well they think it's an opportunity to like actually make like a bigger change but in reality you know they're just there to be defined you know So, like, for example, who immediately comes to mind is, like, Greta Thunberg. I mean, I haven't looked that deeply into her past or anything. Um, I know there are certain right-wingers who are very obsessed with her. But um, I know that she recently said that she's kind of done with politicians. um, Because when you think of how she basically came up, you know, right, exactly. When you think about how she basically came up, it was like... She is talking at these events and, you know, people are inviting her to things because, you know, look, look at this cute little girl um, yelling about climate change, right? And she basically becomes this spectacle, you know, and that spectacle is entertained up to a certain point and people make big events out of her, you know, like breaking down in front of these politicians and stuff. And you know what? They just go right back to normal. Um, I think it was COP26 was like last week or the week before. Yeah. Um, and representatives from uh, a represent- I think the Prime Minister of Barbados was there and she had this, you know, big great speech about how the Global North needs to do more for, you know, these um, countries in the Global South because, you know, they have a responsibility and that kind of thing. Cool. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's like developments going on in Barbados to, you know, basically bring in more tourists and to bring in more, um, and like, you know, resorts building and that kind of thing that basically add to the, um, emissions and add to the, um, negative impact on the environment. You know, same thing with like Trinidad's government, you know, like certain representatives of Trinidad w- went to COP26, including the prime minister. And you know, they're all about, Things changing and, you know, the climate movement um, and the climate change being real and the actions need to be taken. And then, like, this didn't make it in, like, like mainstream news, of course, but in local news, basically right after um, Prime Minister of Dr. Keith Rowley, he went and met up with, like, Shell.
7: Yeah.
6: <clears throat> like, representatives at Shell to, like, basically bring the country and the company closer together. You know, um, because, you know, Trinidad is reliant on oil and that kind of thing. So obviously these sort of leaders and these sorts of movements, they only go up to a certain point. And even then, so much of it is just this performance yeah, and this, um, act basically.
7: I'll, I'll be, I'm putting together a, a thing on COP26 right now, um, because I think it actually it does demonstrate a lot of the soft denial stuff that you're talking about. Because like the the biggest thing to come out of COP twenty six in terms of like actual deals is just uh, progress on <clears throat> carbon markets and carbon offset credits. That's, for their, yeah. that's that's really the only thing we actually got. Um, and I say yeah, we, exactly. but not not like us, but like you know the people in charge. They they got this, and and the 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 quote they gave was. That the, the, the being able to buy carbon offset credits, meaning that like you don't actually make emissions differences, so instead you you buy pretend emissions differences from other countries that actually did make changes, um, so that you don't get penalized. So right. that that's yeah, what buy, that's it's what buying the credits for. But they said they they said buying the credits can potentially unlock trillions of dollars for protecting trees, expanding <laughs> renewable energy, and other projects <laughs> to combat climate change. It, it's And that's just, just the just thing, right? Tax yep. the
5: fuckers. Like don't
7: The climate credits,
5: it's like um, it's the same as saying like Hail Marys because you you sinned and you went to your priest and confessed. It's like, ah, I've 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 done bad (laughs) things to the environment. Tell me, like, how many times I need to go through this ritual in order to in order to cleanse myself of having carbon into the atmosphere.
8: (laughs) You know, I think it's it's bleaker than that in a lot of ways. Like it's, it's 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 really it's the climate version of like
5: the World Wildlife Fund having death squads.
8: Okay, like, just, now
5: like, Chris, you are very anti-death squad, and I think we need to deal with that at some point because hashtag not all death squads. <laughs>
8: yes, my another, I, I, I will need to be held to account for my strong anti-death squad stance. This is a hmm. yeah, yeah,
7: yeah.
5: You say that yeah. now, but you're going to get a death squad to fight the death squads, and then where are you going to be?
6: See another Dead. Uh, another like uh, death squadception. <laughs> <laughs> Like you get, They get a death squad to fight your death squad, and then it's just mm-hmm. like they cancel each other out. So then you have to get another death squad, and then so yep. you Ah, Marxist Leninism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Basically.
5: <laughs> yeah. It's a number uh, another, of other things, too, to be fair to Marxism. <laughs> and,
7: uh, another thing that might but, make you kind of question the integrity of COP26 is that there were more uh, delegates at COP26 from fossil fuel companies than there were from any individual nation. That makes
6: sense. This rules. yeah, But then, right, that's like another thing, right? Because you're talking about COP26 and where soft climate change denial gets into that. But I don't think, I think soft climate change denial can only be applied so far when it comes to those sorts of big spectacles and those big major events. Because even if they themselves really truly understand the depths of climate change and, Trust and believe, like, these oil barons and stuff, they know. Like, they have all the info yeah. right present in front of them. They've done, They've already done their, like, cost-benefit analyses and, like, risk assessments and kind of thing. So they know exactly, like, what the impact is going to be. They have the money to have access to the scientists, right? But it's not soft climate change denial for them. It's, I'm a capitalist. I'm going to do what a capitalist does. You know, it's ultimately... A function we they operating within a system, you know. So self Climate change denial, uh, it is like sort of a psychological phenomenon. But we also have to keep in mind that there's also like a structural component to it. So that even if a person does not face self climate change denial, or isn't experiencing self climate change denial, that alone, even if they like fully confront the issue, that's just an individual, you know. And there's still like a whole structure around that individual. That will still incentivize certain behavior, and then of course, with the incentives of certain behavior comes like the psychological justifications for that behavior, so it kind of almost becomes that they end up justifying themselves into self climate change denial, you know what I mean, so it's kind of like yeah, it's like a lot a, of ebb it's and like it's with that
7: it's like a feedback loop that reinforces yeah. its own existence
6: yeah absolutely
7: I mean I think that honestly like the feedback loop model is where we have a lot of our problems with climate change all they're all very much linked to the feedback loop model of things trying to justify their own existence and then you know certain and then on the reverse side of things you know when certain changes in the climate happen those create their own feedback loops which create more changes to happen it's like yeah. everything yeah, it's everything is just fact. One, one massive loop
6: yeah it kind of gets me to like this. The discourse around climate change and stuff is like halted and diverted and immobilized, you know, by soft climate change denial. You know, discussions of the very real, very current, very near future, and very violent impacts of climate change are just basically softened. Like, like you know when you try to throw a punch in a dream. Yeah. Like you're you trying can... to like push, and then it's like, eh. You know, it's like this kind of soft eh. Um, or like you throw something in space, I guess. It's just, you put all this effort into it and then you go in another direction, that kind of thing. Um, I don't know where I'm going with this analogy, so I'll just keep on going. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, that there's an issue with the conversation, with the discourse has just been, you know, harmed by the psychological phenomenon. But then, of course, there's the other side of the psychological phenomenon of soft climate change denial. Not the hard clenching denial side, but rather the, I'm so on the opposite end of soft clenching denial that I'm like an inconsolable and like illogical and can't even imagine the possibility of anything happening kind of boom, doomer.
7: Yeah. You know? Yeah. The kind of, the kind of extreme doomerism where you, you recognize how you recognize that climate is bad. Um, but then you, you see it as such a massive, overwhelming thing that basically shuts you down from being able to do anything else. And you just like, there's really no point to do anything if it's going to be this bad. There's really no one's, you know, it's such a hard capitalism and the systems that are working to keep it going are such a hard thing to overcome that it seems like the best thing to do is just sit down and do nothing.
6: Yeah. And that's the thing, right? Like these r slash collapse people, right? Um... I mean, I appreciate that they don't shy away from, like, the really difficult stuff. Yeah. But then they also stumble into this kind of, like, hopeless um, Like, this yeah. dramatic kind of, we are screwed. We're all going to be fighting in this Mad Max-style arena. Like, that's not how, you know, climate change is going to play out, you know? Nope. It's not a movie, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, things are going to break down in certain places, and other places are going to um lock down in certain ways. But it's not going to be, like, this sudden global devolution into madness like that, you know? That's not really how social change, that's not really how collapses have, you know, functioned in history, you know? Of course, we live in like a global civilization and previous collapses have been fairly localized. But still, you know, climate change is both global and local. So there are certain changes that will only affect certain localities.
7: This is something that actually the book Desert, addresses fairly well. And I find yeah, frustrating. That's what I'm drawing from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because but I I find it really frustrating because especially on the online left, there's people who treat desert like the gospel, or at least they say they do, but they're actually extreme doomers who fetishize collapse. Um and they're like, oh everything's hopeless, read desert. Yeah. But then it, you but then but you read the desert. But you read that's desert you're like No of Desert is like explicitly anti collapse. It's saying collapse isn't gonna happen. Collapse is a fantasy you tell yourself yeah. to keep you going.
5: And for those kind of, of like you the listening, listening at home who of, um, haven't heard of Desert, Desert is a, a book that's available for free online about what's coming. Um, it's titled Desert because of an old quote about how empires um, leave nothing but deserts in their wake. Basically, like that's it's it's just like a thing that that a uh, empire. I think the exact quote is like empires make a desert and call it peace. Yeah, um, and it's it's basically discussing the fact like not just literal desertification, but like. Um, that that's more of a more of a, a better picture of like our future under climate change than kind of these these Mad Max dreams. This like slow dissolution of of resources and uh, uh, environments, um, and that that's kind of the yeah. It's a it's a good book. You can read it yourself, and it's it's quite influential online. Um, but yeah, as as Garrison pointed out, there are people who kind of take it in a in a direction that I don't believe the authors. I mean, clearly the authors didn't mean because they directly called out that kind of thinking.
6: Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like some people treat like collapse and stuff as basically the secular version of like <laughs> revelation in the Bible.
7: Yeah, yeah. Or it's or it's like the non-Marxist version of like the revolution. It's like it's like this this kind of mythical event to like prepare for and almost be excited for, but like it's it's fake it's a fantasy it's something we tell ourselves to keep ourselves going as things are bad but it's not it's it's not
6: real yeah like any day now the trumpets will sound in the heavens and the scrolls will be broken and yeah the great the great beast will arise from the sea and you know all that vibe
7: yeah and i i I don't know what the solution is for that I, i i don't know how both on like the soft climate denial side of like how do you go about how do you go about Because like the only thing we can really do is for the people you know we know how, how do we go about and tell them that hey things are probably going to be a bit worse than what you're preparing for um, And how do we tell the people who are doomers hey it's not going to be like this weird dystopian thing that you're thinking of either it's like it's 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 interesting because like they're both veering off in two opposite directions but it it both kind of leads to the same point of kind of doing nothing. One version is one version of nothing is basically, you know, voting yeah. for stuff that's not that's never going to happen. The other version is not just not doing anything in general. Um yeah. And I I I don't know how to how to reach those types of people very easily.
6: Yeah. Which kind of brings me to like my thoughts on like how we move past soft climate change Nile. Um I don't think it's just a matter of like trying to like push like campaigns on people. I think it's going to be like a very personal sort of yeah. journey that each person has to go through, right? Because each person is different. Each person is like has different worries and dealing things in a different way, you know? Um so like you want to keep in mind like people's mental health and sort of fortifying your mental health and helping people to fortify theirs because that, when it comes to mental health with regard to like climate change, doing it in isolation, in my experience, has not really worked out. I think what has worked best for me is when I am with, or I am connected with a group of people or even just one other person and when I'm feeling down about climate change because despite all my, you know, messages about solar punk and, you know, we can do this, like the, that's basically the message of my YouTube channel. You know, I still experience, you know, like those sort of, yeah. of thoughts and feelings. All, you know, all I ju- start public about yeah. it. Yeah. If, but what if, I try to do is when I'm feeling those things, I try to be with people who are not currently feeling that, you know, so we're not feeding off of each other's necks of energies. You yeah. Know? So like when I'm in a bad spot, you know, I have people around me who could... Lift me up, and when they're, ba- they're in a bad spot, the vice versa. Because it kind of comes in waves, you know.
7: Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, it's 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 silly to deny those thoughts exist because they do. Like they're they're very they're a very easy neutral state, at least for me to slip into. Um, and the way to get around that is by doing chores at a farm. And, sh- sho- and shoveling poop and taking care of animals and cooking for people—that's like the way that I yeah. can get out of that yeah. kind of mindset. And you know, I, not not to be too hard on all of the kind of doomer nihilists, because there there is there there is a there is a, there is like a a sect of like doomer nihilists who use like the actual definition of nihilism, which is like if if things don't really matter, we should probably fuck some stuff up. Um, and that's right. very useful right like if, if, if you're if, if, if you're on that train you're like yeah you should be tree spiking if if, if, if you're okay with if you think nothing matters um and you are you want to be an actual nihilist then yeah you should make you should make destroy um just make sure it's focused on the people with actual power uh, because if, if you're willing to do that then great we need we need as many as many people like that as possible but it's certainly easier to do that once you have friends and once you're not stuck in this super depressed state all the time
5: yeah and um i i think there's a again we 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 do take a look at like some of the criticisms people have of the show online and i know one that's come up a bunch is people will listen to like our when when we'll talk about you know the severity of the problems and then we'll talk about things like you know mutual aid collectives and small guard seed bombings and all that stuff they'll be like well that's not a solution, and no, of course, that's not going to solve the global problem of carbon emissions from a, a, a civilization of seven billion humans. What it does do, uh, focusing on stuff like that, focusing on building soil, um, focusing on building community resistance, in addition to like having an immediate impact on the number of people you know in in, in your community, it it builds a sense of um, a sense of power. Uh, for the individual, it, it it gives you something to do that isn't just thinking about how bad things are, and that puts you in a mind state that's more useful to actually potentially dealing with the the bigger problems at some point. Um, you have yeah. to have a sense of your own agency that feels real if you're going to actually change anything. Um, and you can you can build it's a muscle, right? You can build it up by by doing things that are not bigger, but are are. Part of the solution, um, and it, yeah, it's exactly. Valuable to do that for your own for your own mental health, because then maybe not, you, if you're maybe if 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 your friend group, if your your affinity group, whatever you want to call it, the people you are hanging out with, if some of them are always engaged in something productive, then when you're in a doom spiral, you can find someone who's working on something, um, and vice versa.
6: Yeah, and it doesn't just help your mental health, but it also contributes to the. Mm-hmm prefigurative activities that we need to actually make a switch to a different system. You know, like the revolution is something that happens overnight or in the far future. It's something that's supposed to be happening all now because as we build those systems, you know, we are building up power. You know, it's kind of like how the black socialists in America describe dual power, you know. It's like we are building these systems and putting these things in place so that we can push towards, like, Fundamental transformation of the system, and it's iterative. But as more people build on top of that, you know, that's how the transformation happens. We all also need to contribute. I
5: mean, I think it's 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 important to talk about this, both to acknowledge like it's a thing that happens, and we all deal with. We all have our moments of like overwhelming despair uh, over what's happening, um, and, and 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 some
7: some moments of unrealistic optimism too yeah every every once in a while
5: (laughs) and the the unrealistic optimism needs to be encouraged um as long as it's not the kind of well we don't need to do anything because someone's i guess there's toxic optimism and there's helpful a toxic
0: It's just being
1: me. Amy Winehouse, back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson, rated R. Under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters, May 17th. This show is
5: sponsored by BetterHelp. We've all got a lot going on right now, especially this year. A lot of stress, different stresses, big things, small things, medium things, family things, friend things, love one things, just, you know, things. And when we keep those things bottled up, they can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a good way to get those things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Therapy's helped me learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. And therapy can empower you to be, you know, a better or at least happier version of yourself. It's not just for people who have experienced trauma or who are dealing with something immediate and serious. It can just be a way to kind of perform maintenance on your own person. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash behind today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash behind. Optimism would be like reading an article about some new carbon capture technology and being like, Oh cool. Well, I don't need to worry. Um, but, but most optimism I think is, is positive. Um, and it, I think it's good to build a capacity for optimism by, by building your, your personal sense of, of agency and power by, by doing shit that helps. Um, and I, I think that accepting that you can do things that are meaningful, um, and that, uh, there are things to be done that can help the situation is a critical way of fighting against, you know, this uh, 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 soft climate change denial, which which is a um, a major threat because there's I think, honestly, at this point, more people who are subscribing to some form of soft climate change denial than there are people who are uh, just denying climate change in its entirety. Um, yeah. And that's. I, I think where a lot of the effort has to go. Uh, so I, yeah, I think this is a really important thing for people to understand and to be vigilant against. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, well Andrew, uh, where can the audience find you outside
6: you of find me here right now? Yeah. So you can find me on my YouTube channel, Saint Andrewism, and you can find me on Twitter at underscore Saint True.
5: Excellent. Well, you can find us here where you just found us. We'll, we'll be here tomorrow, unless this is a Friday, in which case we'll be here on Monday. Um, have a have a good, you know, life. Have a good life. Take
2: care. <laughs> this is Roxanne Gay, host of the Roxanne Gay Agenda, the bad feminist podcast of your dreams. Now, what is the Roxanne Gay Agenda, you might ask? Well, it's a podcast where
0: I'm going to speak my mind about what's on my mind. And that could be anything. Every week, I will be in conversation with an interesting person who has something to say. We're going to talk about feminism, race. Writing in books and art, food, pop culture, and yes, politics. I start each show with a recommendation. Really, I'm just going to share with you a movie or a book or maybe some music or a comedy set. Something that I really want you to be aware of
2: and maybe engage with as well. Listen to the Luminary Original Podcast, The Roxanne Gay Agenda, The Bad Feminist Podcast of Your Dreams, every
0: Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: From Cavalry Audio comes the new true crime podcast, The Shadow Girls. I always wanted to know what it
1: felt like to kill somebody. started laughing. Prosecutors described him as a serial killer savant, picking up these girls, getting them in a position of vulnerability when he got a hold of their neck. That was it.
4: I'm Carolyn Osorio, a journalist and lifelong resident of the Pacific Northwest. I grew up near the banks of the Green River and in the shadow of the killer that bears its name.
1: How many times did you bring the camera to One the
10: time. Just one time? One time. He started fantasizing about having sex with his mother. Then he fantasized about killing her.
4: But this podcast isn't only about tracking down the killer. It's about the victims.
0: We stayed in the woods. He always liked to go to the woods.
2: It was just, to all of us, kind of strange you know how he feels about prostitutes?
4: Listen to The Shadow Girls on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Executive producer Paris Hilton brings back the hit podcast, How Men Think. And that's good news for anyone that is confused by men, which is basically everyone. Get an inside look at what goes on in the mind of men from the men themselves. It's real talk, straight from the source. The How Men Think podcast is exactly what we need to figure them out. It's going to be fun, informative, and probably
4: a bit scary at times because we're literally going inside the minds of men.
0: As much as we like to think all men are the same... They're actually very different. Each week, a celebrity guest host provides honest advice in his area of expertise. When I agreed to do this reboot, I had a few conditions. No sugarcoating, no mind games, and absolutely no mansplaining. Men are hard enough to understand without the mind games. Listen to How Men Think on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
8: Alright, welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart, and also sometimes about how things have been falling apart for a while now, and today we're going to talk about how things were also bad in falling apart in the 2000s, which is a profoundly cursed time period, and specifically we're going to talk about, I think, a part of the anti-war movement that does not get much attention. Um, which is the port militarization resistance that happened, sort of two thousand six, two thousand seven, and with us today to talk about this is two people who were part of this movement. Uh, we have Juliana Newhauser, hello, hello, and Brendan Maslowskis-Dunn. yeah, both of whom were uh, organizers and activists while this was going on. Yeah, and uh, thank, thank you, thank you both for being here.
10: Yeah, thanks for having us.
8: So yeah, as as I was saying a bit in the intro. I think that this is a part of the anti-war movement that is not very well known. I think, I think a lot of people know about the initial stuff that happened in 2003, and people might know about some of the stuff that was happening against the war in Afghanistan, like, right when it started. But I don't think most people know that it, like, you know, even after 2003 sort of doesn't work, that it continues, and that it continues sort of... In forms that are that are very interesting, and, and I, so I, I guess I want you to to to, to start out. I want to ask how we sort of got from the early part of the anti-war movement into this, and how you two got involved. I would say that um, there's this
11: narrative about the movement against the war in Iraq that there was the largest protests in human history, at least at that point. I don't know if it's still true against the invasion, and then it didn't work. And everyone kind of went home and ended there. And to a certain extent, that's true. But like you said, the people that didn't go home went in interesting directions. And um, so at the time, there were... Direct action was not as acceptable as it is now. The protest movement was largely dominated either by... um, big liberal coalitions or PSL front groups that were basically indistinguishable in what they actually did, which was (laughs) basically nothing. And in the best of cases, and in the worst of cases, counterinsurgency. Um, But then there were small groups of people that, that when we saw that it didn't work, and we saw that these giant peaceful marches from one part of town to another um, or voting for John Kerry or whatever didn't work, that we started to look for other options.
10: Yeah, and, uh, you know, I I got involved, um, you know, I'd say with the anti-war movement, I, that idea of how, how war is unjust was uh, really taught to me from a very young age. I mean, my parents were you know, children of the 60s and they had family members fighting in Vietnam and, um, you know, friends dying in Vietnam uh, and were against the protest back then. So I grew up hearing these stories and, of course, stories from uh, family members, particularly one of my grandfathers, both of them who were veterans in World War II. One of them was a Marine in the, you know, in the Pacific Theater and still, into his seventies, eighties, and nineties until his final days was just dealing with horrific PTSD and had always taught me from a young age, never to get involved. So I, you know, and, and I remember when, when the very clearly, um, you know, I'm sure it's on everyone's minds now. when when the invasion of Afghanistan started, when the invasion of Iraq started, I was at that, that massive demonstration in Washington, DC that Juliana just mentioned. And, you know, I, I ended up now, I'm from Utica, New York. I went to a, a rural high school uh, just outside of uh, of Utica. You know, Rust Belt, uh, generally speaking, impoverished and also very conservative area of New York. And, you know, I had the recruiters bothering me, military recruiters uh, in high school, uh, you know, recruiting my friends. And it, they were just everywhere in the hallways. Uh, so I, it was very present um, with me. When I was younger, I moved out to Olympia, Washington in 2006, and that's when uh, a new student activist group, Students for a Democratic Society, was launched. That's how Juliana and I first met. We were both in separate chapters of that new organization in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, the port protests started just uh, just a few months after I moved out there in, in Olympia in 2006.
8: So, wait, to to, to clarify this for a second, because I've never quite been clear on this history. So there was a second SD, uh, like Students for Democratic Society, that was, like, unrelated to the first one? Yeah, it was
11: reborn briefly um, at the end of the Bush administration. That That explains a lot of things that were
10: otherwise very baffling. (laughs) We're not that old, yeah. We were definitely in the the second, uh, you know, the rebirth of it. Um, So, you know, I think it... It took on some things in spirit, um, you know, but also was, I'd say, different in many ways. And and it was very active. To me, at least, it was very exciting to be a, a member of that, the new SDS because there are over a dozen chapters in the Pacific Northwest. And it was a great way to connect with young activists all over the U.S.
8: So SDS is emerging in this time period. One of the other things I was interested about is something something you were talking about in 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 the, in the early part of this, which has to do with the, the the way that these giant, both the sort of answer coalition PSL Frank Group and I guess the ISO was still around back then, uh, coalitions work versus how like anything else worked. i So so was was SDS sort of like consciously set up in 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 opposition to those groups? I don't think it was conscious, but it, there was just like I
11: mean these days, I mean like there's a lot of controversy around psl with like anarchist versus tanky politics mm-hmm. none of that mattered at that time like none of that mattered the only thing that mattered was that answer which was the psl front group was completely fucking useless like they <laughs> completely indistinguishable from any peace police um liberal democratic front group there was literally no difference just in terms of their aesthetics maybe like is there a donkey or a hammer and sickle on something? That's the only (laughs) difference we saw. So I don't, I don't think there was, it wasn't, there wasn't like a conscious, like political opposition to it. It was just like, they're not doing anything. Mm -hmm. And, and so we had to look in another direction.
10: Actually, you know, it's hard to keep track of the alphabet soup of authoritarian (laughs) communist groups at times, but this was actually answer for those who don't recall. It was a, front group for the workers world party the wwp oh, okay. which oh, yeah. yeah i mean it's it's hard to keep track right
8: <laughs> yeah it's, it's the same thing like i think so So okay so, so for people who are sort of unaware of this there's a network of connected but sometimes feuding like weird stalinist cults that kind of re- that kind of like they they hold on to like the set the 80s and 90s and they start sort of rebuilding again around the anti war movements in that period that that's the p s l that's the w p that's answer like and and, and I, th- I think like most like modern anti war groups are also still these people, which is incredibly depressing something I want to talk a bit about at, at towards the end of this but yeah, just for people who have not spent <laughs> like the last half decade in the in the trenches of extremely weird uh anti war politics so yeah, so so I think we should get into how the sort of the the first action starts in Olympia.
10: Yeah, so and there were actually a couple actions that happened um, in the year preceding that I you know before I moved out to Olympia in two thousand six. Mm-hmm. It was not yet under the banner of PMR Port Militarization Resistance. That was a name that was officially. Coined in, uh, you know, in in May and June of 2006. And so, just to give you an idea, uh, Olympia it's it's a college town. Right, at the Evergreen State College is there. It's also the capital of Washington State, so you have that going on. It's also a military town. It's a little over 20 miles south of what we called Fort Lewis. It's now called JBLM, JBLM, or Joint base, lewis McCord, it's the an Army and Air Force base, now it's one base. Um, so you had all these, you know, different kind of elements uh, in, you know, in tandem in, in that town. And the public port, uh, the Port of Olympia, is one of about 70 or so public ports in the state of Washington. Some of which are, I mean, they're used for all kinds of things, you know, uh, for our commercial, private industry, but also the military and the U.S. government. Uh, so, uh, you know, I I heard from someone, I don't even remember who, that the military was sending a ship to the port of Olympia in late May of 2006. And this happened for 10 or so days. And it was just kind of a, a, a natural instinct for a whole bunch of us to go down to the port of Olympia. It was, it was the war machine in our backyard. And the idea was to just... Block the vehicles. Uh, it started out with just like less than 10 people, a number of folks getting arrested, and that very rapidly culminated into larger protests every single day. Uh, an act of blockades, people, uh, those of us like Juliana, myself, and other folks using civil disobedience or what we preferred to call civil resistance to try and stop or at the very least slow down these striker vehicles. And to give folks an idea, of what a striker vehicle is, you can look it up online, but it's kind of halfway between, um, you know, a, a tank and a Humvee. It doesn't have the slats, you know, that a tank would have. Uh, it's, you know, and they were being used in both Iraq and Afghanistan for for raids of residential areas. They were really on the front lines of of the war in, in both those countries. And that's what we were trying to stop.
11: I only got involved later um, because I wasn't living in Olympia at the time. Um, I was in another SDS chapter. Um, but my roommate was from Olympia and he had been involved in that first round of protests in Olympia before moving up to Bellingham. Yeah, and so like hearing his story has got me very excited because it's like finally someone's someone's doing something. Like yeah. someone's they're not just like, you know, it's like everything else was just so liberal. And- whether it was marching from one place to another or writing to your congresspeople or occupying their office, it was like asking someone else to do something, which you knew from the beginning they were never going to do. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, this was finally someone was like actually getting into it. Um, I think the first one of the things that happened here was that um, they started to avoid. Um, the, there's there's kind of a geographical thing that i think um for people who either don't know washington or because they're normal people don't know like the port areas of these cities very well because it's like like unless you're a longshoreman like why are you, would you go down to like the port of tacoma yeah there's like, <laughs> nothing there yeah no um but uh they kept moving it around because um, Olympia is also not very big. And um, so it's, there's really only two roads into the port, which is very small. And so it was, it's very easy to block it. Um, And so then I think the first time that I got involved um, was in 2007 um, when they had moved it because they kept moving it around to try and Switch things up and wait. Sorry,
12: us, they're, they're 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 moving um, the ship
8: around. Is is that?
11: they No, it's what, like each moving, time sorry. they had to make a military shipment. They would um, it's like like once the ship was in the port, they would just have to go through with it. Hmm, okay. but then um, you know, it's like every every six months or so, they had to make another military shipment, and they would change the port usually each time, um, to try and let. To basically, to avoid us, it doesn't seem like this is like normal practice. Yeah. <laughs> um, the first time I had gone down was in um, Tacoma, which is a much, much, much more industrialized port than Olympia. It's you know it's like a big port, like a more normal port, I guess. And that one was honestly pretty crazy, um, because you're just trapped in this giant industrial maze, basically at the mercy of the riot cops. The best success we had was definitely at the port of Olympia. Um, I think in in 2007, in Olympia was definitely, I guess, like the glory moment, which was um, when people were able to on and off, like, actually hold the port and control its entrances and exits.
10: Yeah, and I want to, you know, just emphasize that like the, the one, the, the military changing their approach, right. To avoid us. So jumping from port to port with these different shipments, they actually went so far because we were so successful as a movement in the Pacific Northwest uh, to ship striker vehicles by rail out of the Pacific Northwest uh, and even going so far as to uh, ports in Texas. Um, wow. But you know, one one thing that we did is that we, built up contacts with other activists, with longshore workers all up and down the West Coast in California. There are other activists we're connected uh, with in Texas, Hawaii, New Jersey, and New York. There is a desire in the anti-war movement. Uh, and, and, you know, in some extent, maybe it's like it, it was small, but some folks in the labor movement, especially in Oakland where the ILWU, the, you know, longshore workers union is a lot more militant than say in a place like Olympia. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, I mean, people wanted to replicate this model because as Juliana said, we were successful in 2007. We shut down the port of Olympia for a total of, it was essentially two days. They were not, they're not shipping anything in or out. Uh, we set up blockades. We're willing to throw down with the police in the street.
11: And one of the things that
10: was cool about that
11: blockade is that um, one of the there's two entrances, like I said, and one was completely blockaded. And then the other one, um, we had like a moving... I don't really even know what it was, but something with wheels that we could move in and out um, to open it up. And so then we could allow like civilian cargo to move in and out, but then like we wheel it back in place um, to block military shipments.
8: So were you, were you able to actually like, stop them from, like, while in, in, in that one we were you able to actually, like, stop them from moving this off altogether? Or did you eventually get cleared up no. by the police and they moved it?
11: We would eventually get cleared out by the police. It's like, we were never able to... It's like, we were, we we held it for two days. The Those protests um, took place over a series of two weeks or more or less. Um, we were only able to fully hold it for two days before eventually they would clear us out. But one of the things is that it, this does it did create problems for the army um because when you work with a port you know it's like you've got like a certain time frame that you've contracted with the port to do whatever it is you're going to do and it's not too happy if you take longer
10: than you said you would or yeah. yeah. and the, the other thing I wanted to add is, you know, I, I think the other really important element with this whole movement going on is the Pacific Northwest was, um, it, it is specifically Western Washington, where the two of us were living. It was, it was, uh, you know, the center in, in a sense, it was the heart of the anti-war movement in the country at that time. One because of this militant direct action that we were. You know, we were uh, building up in the streets and trying to throw a wrench in the gears of the war machine to, to at the very least, slow it down. Which, in, in some ways, we did. But you know, we were up against so much. But the other added element, of course, is the GI resistance and the soldiers who are resisting. IVA, also known as Iraq Veterans Against the War, was very active there. They set up a GI coffee house across. You know, literally across the the street. Uh, you know, the uh, the gates for one of the entrances for Fort Lewis. Um, there are a whole bunch of soldiers that were going AWOL. We had friends who were active duty soldiers who had fought in, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan that were AWOL and they were hiding you know, refusing to go back into wow. the striker brigades that joined us in port militarization resistance. Uh, there were a whole, you know, long list of soldiers that were very publicly saying, you know, I'm refusing to fight in Iraq or Afghanistan for, you know, various reasons. And so we are very much connected with this movement too. And And I think the higher ups in the military, they're, they're hyper aware of that. They studied us very well, um, you know, to the point of actually you know, spying on us. So that's like a whole other element of the story, too.
8: So One of the things that I've heard from talking to other people who were involved in this was that, like, while, like, during these protests, like, the level of police militarization just, like, skyrocketed. And, like, I, I remember, I was talking about this, it was, like, you know, if, if you go back and look at, like, old System of a Down videos... You know they'll they'll have these things. Yeah, and you'll see these you see these riot police and like you look at them, and it's like these people they look so much less armored than like the people that we have now. And one of the things that I I thought was interesting about this was that like th- this is I think one of the points where you start getting the modern riot police showing up that are just like you know completely encased in like armor and yeah. I want to talk about just like the police response to this because I think that's that's another thing I think I think. There's, never, there's a kind of a tendency to sort of project back what the police looked like in 2021, just onto the whole history of police. And I think it's like, it's, it's, it's gotten worse even in the last 20 years.
10: Yeah. I mean, uh, so I live downtown in Olympia and probably just like a six minute walk away from the port of Olympia. Uh, and, and also very conveniently just a few blocks away from the police station. So, so lucky us. So we actually saw, you know, we could see from the front of down on the road, down on the sidewalk from the front of our house, uh, some of the military shipments going by. And and we, we, we did see that. Absolutely. And at, at times it was, it was terrifying. I mean, I lived in an activist house. We jokingly called HQ because that's just, you know, where it, because of its proximity to the port, that's where a number of us were having meetings, uh, you know, around these protests early on in 2006 And, um, yeah, I mean, we like, they look like RoboCop and it's something I had, I, you know, I hadn't like, I had been to like mass marches and demonstrations, like the RNC protests and DNC protests in Boston, New York, and like in Washington DC. Uh, and so I would see these like riot cops, but they were, I mean, ubiquitous in these port protests. It was like a whole army of them that was sent out. I mean, when Juliana said that things got kind of crazy at the Port of Tacoma protests, I mean, there was like a police riot, you know, like the cops went absolutely nuts. They're shooting people with tear gas and and pepper balls and, and brutalizing people. I would never before witnessed anything like that. And it got to the point in you know, in Olympia where we kind of knew early on that we were being traced by the police uh, to the extent where, you know, one friend of ours was followed from our house to the bus station to take a bus to school by the police and then was stopped and essentially assaulted by them uh, on the street. And we had another uh, fellow activist and, uh, you know, roommate of mine who was Going out to driving out with a few friends, uh, a few fellow activists from Olympia to Aberdeen, about an hour's drive. So Aberdeen, there's a Port of Grays Harbor there. Pretty conservative small town. It's where Kurt Cobain is from.
11: Home of the famous uh, Kurt Cobain themed McDonald's. (laughs) (laughs)
10: Uh, they served billions, and, and billions served in that one McDonald's and Kurt Cobain's McDonald's. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they you know they they were they were following. They had orders. You know, the Washington State Patrol to um, you know pull over uh, a car full full of known anarchists. There was alert gone out <laughs> to all the police departments. They pulled them. They pulled them over. They made him walk the line. He was hadn't, you know, wasn't drinking, had no drugs, like nothing in his system. But they he was driving under like one mile per hour under the speed limit. They arrested him for D uh DWI, you know, eventually fought the charges, sued them, uh, and you know, won a big settlement out of all that. But that's just one example of many of the lengths that the police would go to. Uh, it was pretty severe, even there's a uh, house of a bunch of anarchists, younger anarchists, uh, called uh, Pitch Pipe Info Shop in Tacoma, and that was also a big target. The police were swarming around them all the time.
11: They had like cameras set up, like specifically just outside the info shop. Like there weren't ca- surveillance cameras there before, but then it was like, oh, we'll just conveniently put them on this one specific street corner.
8: Yeah, I think like it's, that was one of the things I was reading about. This is you have that stuff, and then also, I think one of the scariest parts of this is that. Like army intelligence gets involved. And yeah, do you want to talk about uh the man named quote unquote John Jacob, who was in fact not that?
10: Yeah, so uh, you know, I'm curious what what memories you have of our our good dear friend John Jacob Giuliano.
11: I don't think I ever actually knew him in person, but he was the um the moderator of the listserv, wasn't he?
10: Yes, and... he was one of the moderators of our listserv.
11: Now that I look back on it, I'm like the the port militarization resistance the Serb was always just like this dramatic shit show. And it's like, <laughs> looking back on it I was like, oh. <laughs> that it
2: was moderated
11: by a, a cop that did nothing did absolutely nothing to like, establish order or huh, I wonder if that was on purpose. Yeah.
10: So I think there's definitely some things that happen, like, you know, looking back uh, from our vantage point today, it's like, okay, things make a little more sense at the time though. I mean, we we're in this movement, right? And so you know, that means like meeting people where they're at, we would find all kinds of people that would like want to join the movement. Like I, like I said earlier, like active duty soldiers that were joining. So I met this guy named John Jacob and uh, he sent an email out to me. I was one of the contacts for the Olympia SDS group. And it's he like, Hey, You know, there's kind of like a parent organization that some old like elder activists are in uh, to kind of mentor us called Movement for a Democratic Society. Very small, never really took off, but it's like I'm interested in getting involved. Uh, We met up in public and he seemed like an all right guy. I mean, he was, um, you know, 40-ish, early 40s. He told me he had like, you know, been in the military for years and he actually still worked at Fort Lewis. So he was always open about that but it only went that far. He didn't ever tell us what he actually did there. And it wasn't abnormal for, you know, we had many folks that worked active duty, you know, on base and civilian, civilian roles or or soldiers, as I mentioned, that were in port militarization resistance. So he gets involved and he gets really involved with port militarization resistance. He goes to protests. He gets pretty close with this group of anarchists I mentioned who lived in Tacoma, um, and he seemed like a really solid guy to to most of us um, and you know things happen as as we progress, and you know as the military responded to our uh, you know how effective we were in the anti war movement and the g i resistance movement by changing their tactics, uh, we noticed that, okay, when we first started the protests um, we we had the ability to catch the police by surprise, by setting up, you know, a blockade here or having a surprise action there at this time or this port, et cetera, et cetera. And as time progressed, we found out that, you know, we were having these, making these decisions for tactics and our strategy. We thought that we're in private. And then for whatever reason, the police kind of knew about where we were going to be before we even showed up. And that, I remember that like, clearly um, happening in 2007, in the port of Olympia.
11: Yeah, in Tacoma, there there there's a lot of things like that. Like, there was one time when there were, like, some people who um, had a meeting in a closed room with, like, all their, they had taken, like, the batteries out of their cell phones. They had simply written on the whiteboard the time and place they were going to have their next meeting, which is going to be in a diner near the port. And so that way, if, like, if for any reason the room was bugged, it wouldn't be caught up because it was just written on a board and then it was like a small meeting too so it's like there wouldn't and then when they got to that diner there was like full of cops and like clearly waiting for them like at that point it's like it was very clear there was some some level of infiltration involved
10: yeah and i think we from early on like you know we we knew our history. I mean, you know, one of our, yeah. our fellow activists in PMRs and PMRs and a friend of ours, Peter Bomer is a professor at the Evergreen state college. He was in the original SDS back in the sixties. And, you know, he was essentially a, a political prisoner for a couple of years in both Massachusetts and California. Um, I mean, the feds essentially tried to assassinate him um, back in, uh, in the seventies when he was active in the anti-war movement in San Diego. Like we knew You know, former Black Panthers, and we read our history. So we knew about the history of COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program of the 60s and 70s, and the war on the anti war and civil rights and Black power, American Indian movements, et cetera. So we knew, you know, just intuitively early on. uh, But there was one thing that happened in particular, which prompted some of us to file for a public records request with the city of Olympia. And uh, another activist is walking down the street in Olympia. I'm a member of the Wobblies industrial workers of the world union. And we had like a, one of those metal newspaper boxes downtown and it was locked to a pole, um, you know, with a bike lock and there are some city workers there with a pickup truck and they're cutting the lock to this what? newspaper box and they threw it in their pickup truck. And so our, you know, this friend what? of ours was there. And was like, what? what the hell, what are you doing? What's going on? And one of the workers just kind of shrugged and was like, I don't know. The police told us to do this, and they drove off like they stole, you know, our or essentially like our union property or whatever. Um, so we had a you know our our lawyer friend Larry Hildes and the National Lawyers Guild you know call and kind of threaten the city and and then a number of us got together like hey you know let's do like a public records request um, with the city of of Olympia freedom of information law right and so we did and the request was. You know, just requesting any all information the city had, um, any exchanges, communications by email, et cetera, um, between the police and like other agencies about anarchists, the IWW, Students for a Democratic Society, um, and their initial search that the city clerk did yielded something like thirty thousand responses. <laughs> so she's like, "Okay, I got to narrow this down," and. I, I don't know. I was working on the request at the time. And for some reason, like, I don't know, we're port protests. We're near a military base uh, communications between the army, not thinking anything. And so the initial responses, we actually got, um, you know, maybe 100, 130 or so different documents, just copies of emails, et cetera, that um, were little puzzle pieces for this massive puzzle. And it was just a few of them. Uh, and it was, you know, there was an email talking about our guy in the Navy going to a PMR meeting uh, to get some intel. Uh, there's, uh, you know, all kinds of things like that. There are a few emails in particular. Um, and the email address was something like John, John J. Towery at, you know, army.us, whatever the email address was. So there's a crew of activists that got together. Put their heads together, did some research quietly for a few months, and eventually found out by publicly accessible information like voter registration records, and also finding out something about like a motorcycle club called like the, I don't know, like the Brown Butte Club or the Brown Butt Club or something. And <laughs> and uh, like found out that this John Towery guy that was in this motorcycle club and had his, you know, was registered to vote outside of Tacoma in, in this town there. Uh, it was actually John Jacob. It was this guy that we thought was a fellow activist, an anarchist, um, and and a friend. You know, I thought he was a personal friend of mine. Turns out, he was actually essentially an army intelligence officer, working for something called a force protection unit at uh, at Joint Base, uh, Joint Base Lewis McCord and also working um, with a whole list of different agencies and what turned out to be like a massive uh, surveillance network that was national in scope. This guy was sent by the army along with many others to infiltrate us, to spy on us and to disrupt us. It was huge.
8: Yeah. And that that's one of the things that I've always thought was really interesting about this is like, so like I, I learned about poor militarization resistance basically because I was like poking around the history of like informants and I ran into this and I was like, what? Because, and that was what I, what I thought, one of the things I thought was really interesting about this is that like like, I think th- this chapter of the anti-war movement is, e- even on the left, is, like, not very well known. But, like, the seriousness with which the army seems to have taken it is, like, is really remarkable. Yeah, I'm wondering what you two think about that. One thing we have to emphasize is,
11: is that we were not a large group of people. Yeah. Like, um, the number of people who were actively involved in port-militarization resistance
10: at its peak was, at a, how many people do you think it was, Brandon? Well, it depends. I mean, I'd say they are probably like at its peak, maybe uh, probably forty to fifty people that would like consistently show up to things. You know, maybe a, a slightly smaller, very core group. But we would have demonstrations with like and then
11: like yeah.
10: four hundred people. You know,
11: yeah, and like that would be like the max. Like there is, it's like there are like the peaceful, like kind of like support actions. You know, you'd get. Like a couple hundred people, and then like for the stuff, like where it's like the the first night that uh, that the part of the entrance to the part of Olympia was occupied, it would be like, like forty to fifty people. Um, these were not, these were not very large groups of people. Um, I feel like, and like I said, it's like one thing that we need to keep in mind was that um, the peace police were much stronger back then than they are now. Nowadays, like, like as we saw last year, it's like people in the US have learned to throw down, but that was not the case at the time. And so this is a very, very small group of people. Um, and I think we accomplished a lot from, with how small it was. Um, if it had been larger, it would have accomplished way more. Um, but even that small core, of like 40 to 50 people with maybe expanding out to like a larger group of a couple hundred had them that scared that they went that far to try and disrupt it.
8: Yeah, and, and this is one of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently of... Uh, this, this seems to be a very consistent thing, which is that like the, 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 the two things that are guaranteed to like just have a hammer drop on you if you touch them is pipelines and ports. And that, that, was, that was something, you know, I, I, we've, we've talked a lot on here about pipeline protests. Um, but I, I was interested in what you two think about, because, you know, th- th- this, this is like a v- very particular moment right now in which you're dealing with all these logistics chain failures and i was wondering if if you do think there's anything that we can learn from how your versions of the sort of, of of port demonstrations worked for potentially trying to leverage that in the future especially with like contract negotiations for the like port workers in oakland coming up next year
10: yeah that's a great question you know there's this old saying in in the iww direct action gets the goods right and i think it really boils down to that it's building up uh you know, mass movements and and social movements from below uh, that rely on direct action, that rely on civil resistance, civil disobedience. Um, yeah, and and the pipeline protests that have been ongoing, where indigenous people have been on the front lines of that uh, for many many years now. I mean, the kind of repression. And surveillance that we face uh, really pales in comparison to the kinds of you know surveillance and repression that folks were facing uh, at Standing Rock, for example. Um, you know, I think of of course one of the well one of the main differences is is that it was primarily the the military, you know, with us, right, that was uh, surveilling us because this this was very specifically you know a war issue and a military issue. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, like, I, I think there's a big questions like, what What do we have to do that's, that's new? And to me, I say, you know, for both that kind of militant action, but also for the labor movement, it's like, what's well, not, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are things that have a tried and true track record of getting the goods. And that is, you know, these more disruptive kind of actions and, and and movements. Um and so one of them would be, you know, I guess my suggestion would be to like go back to the basics. And even like I would say now, you know, this remember, this is at a time when like Facebook was around, right? Like, but we weren't really using that for our organizing. We really relied on like face-to-face meetings, you know, phone calls and building up trust with people and building up our capacity to like Take actions and make change. You know, I think I'm not saying throw out everything that you know. The, at least some of the good that social media has to offer, but like I think going beyond that and and going back to these older tactics. And then for the labor movement, like the big thing is you know, and it's just like a bigger question for for mainstream unions in particular. Uh, I mean, there the, the whole idea of like union contracts is that workers also lose a lot. Yeah, they get some things, but uh business owners and bosses have rights carved out in in those contracts and with the longshore (laughs) workers i mean the difficult thing with that of course is like there would be some symbolic strikes that of course like longshore workers have done and continue to do you know around like the war in uh, iraq historically supporting mumi abu jamal mayday etc like in oakland Um, But they have some things for that written into their contracts. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for all these other like unions, it's like, well, you know, we can't strike at all for, for the next two years or next three years, whatever the life of the contract is. Like, I think it's a bigger question and challenge for the labor movement to move beyond that and not be put in this straitjacket of, of contracts like that.
8: Yeah. I think that, that particular, like the, the, the no strike clause Part of contracts, I think is an interesting thing because it, it I don't know, there, there, there's not, I mean, there, there, there are some unions that will actually do stuff around fighting it, but mostly people just sort of don't care. And, and I think you wind up in a situation where it seems like you, you kind of have to plan your tactics around when contract negotiations are happening, because otherwise you can't actually get people to do anything
5: more than like a one day symbolic strike.
10: Yeah. And or, you know, the challenges like, you know, we have this great American tradition that's not
5: the evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini games.
4: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
9: This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years, and not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
10: Unique to the U.S., it's universal, really, and it's one that resonates with me. Breaking the law, right? And,
9: <laughs> and like, we're, you know, we're, like,
10: civil disobedience. That is that what we are doing in the streets and blocking the ports. We were breaking the law and we knew it. And that's what the civil rights movement the black freedom movement did in in the 1960s uh, but like we have recent examples of workers breaking the law in mass yep. like the west virginia teacher strikes that happened uh, a few years ago like teachers in every single county in that state went on strike they broke the law and and they won something out of that and i think that's what we really need to encourage people is this idea of breaking out of like the norm and and breaking the laws which you know the laws that are in place which are not there to you know expand our freedom they're they're yeah. to contract it
8: yeah one of one of my friends had a joke about what was the exact line it was i uh, it's it's only illegal if you get caught and it only matters if you lose which i think is a good way of thinking about <laughs> uh, both yeah, breaking absolutely. the law and yeah and <laughs> You know, yeah, I think it's also like it's worth mentioning that, like, the other sides, the law doesn't matter to them at all. Like they just tear it up and like light it on fire constantly. So don't don't bind yourself. If, If you can if you can not get caught and not like go to prison for the rest of your life, don't bind yourself by a bunch of like paper that the other side just doesn't care about.
10: Yeah. And that's an excellent point because that's the big thing, you know, with the army and law enforcement in general, like surveillance of us, they were in the police, just their actions their brazen actions on the street, like the riot police. Um, they were just breaking the law all the time. They absolutely have a deep visceral hatred of the bill of rights of civil rights and civil liberties. And so there were a number of, you know, court cases, that sprung out of, um, you know, this movement, there was a case called Panagakis Vitari uh, another Juliana Panagakis was another PMR member, co-plaintiff in that case. And, you know, it was a, a case against the army that, you know, we we waged and brought up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and, you know, eventually lost and, and could have brought it to the Supreme Court, but didn't. But You know, like the the other thing is like the violation of the Posse Comentatus Act. Uh, It was a whole other thing. You you know, we don't have to get like so tied up into like the legalistic uh, thing. But like the point, your point is valid. Like they don't care about the laws that are already there. They'll they'll just uh, intentionally break them, uh, break their own laws that they have set up. And, you know, they'll just get a slap on the wrist because that's really all that's all that happens to them
8: i think i think i think that's a good note to end on uh break the law it's fake it's also bad um do do you two have anything you want to plug
10: other than that other than you know encouraging people to break the law do anarchism (laughs) (laughs) blockade your local port (laughs) yeah uh yeah i mean i i think it's you know, I I guess just encourage people to do as, you know, it sounds like what what you're doing by having us on the show. And like, there are some in our very recent history, um, you know, movements and wins that we all as activists today can still learn from. And I think part of that, um, you know, I don't want to call us elders because we're not that old, but like (laughs) one part of that is like, making sure like our movements are still like multi-generational and like we, we learn from each other. And also as, as Juliana and I did, like I mentioned earlier, like we learned from the movements of the past SDS, the black Panthers, uh, the black freedom movement, et cetera. Um, But there's a lot that, you know, these, these struggles I think have to offer us today.
8: All right. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you both for talking, coming on and talking with us. you for having us thank you well this is this has been it could happen here uh find us at happen here pod on twitter instagram and the rest of our stuff is at cool zone media at the same somewhat accursed social media places i don't know why i'm saying somewhat they're just accursed yeah see you next time whenever that is
2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Jake Halpern, host of Deep Cover. Our new season is about a lawyer who helped the mob run Chicago.
11: We controlled the courts. We controlled absolutely everything.
1: He bribed judges and even helped a hitman walk free. Until one day when he started talking with the FBI and promised that he could take the mob down. I've spent the past year trying to figure out why he flipped and what he was really after. From my perspective, Bob was too good to be true. There's gotta be something wrong with this.
13: I wouldn't trust that guy. He looks like a little scumbag liar, stool pigeon. He looked like what he was, a rat.
3: I can say with all certainty, I think he's a hero because he didn't have to do what he did, and he did it anyway.
11: The moment I put the wire on the first time, my life was over.
2: If it ever got out, they would kill me in a heartbeat.
1: Listen to Deep Cover on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: After 30- years. It's time to return to the halls of West Beverly High and hang out at the Peach Pit. On the podcast 90210MG, join Jenny Garth and Tori Spelling for a rewatch of the hit series Beverly Hills 90210 from the very beginning. We get to tell the fans all of the behind the scenes stories that actually happened. So they know what happened on camera, obviously, but we can tell them
0: all the good stuff that happened off camera.
4: Get all the juicy details of every episode that you've been wondering about for decades as 90210 super fan and radio host Sissony sits in with Jenny and Tori to reminisce, reflect, and relive each moment from Brandon and Kelly's first kiss to shouting Donna Martin graduates. You have an amazing memory. You
0: remember everything about the entire 10 years that we filmed that show. And you remember absolutely nothing of the 10 years that we filmed that show. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Listen to 9021OMG on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: welcome back to it could happen here the show about things not being great and maybe trying to make them better um th- I'm Robert Evans uh, this week we got we have a special little 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 episode for you um I'm gonna sit down and talk with Lucas Herndon um Lucas you are from New or you live in New Mexico at least um and you wanted to talk to me a bit about some stuff that's going on in your school boards we just did a two-parter on fascist attempts to kind of take over and dominate school boards around the country. And you've got some personal experience with that. So I wanted to kind of just turn this over to you to start us off.
12: Yeah. Uh, Thanks, Robert. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, Yeah. My name is Lucas and I live in Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is in the Southern part of the state. We're close to the border for people that are interested. Um, And yeah, I like, you know, the, my experience that happened last week is sort of the quintessential. It could happen here. Yeah, um, <laughs> it did. <done dead>. Yeah, <laughs> it did exactly. Yeah, Las, uh, Las Cruces, Cruces, um, politically speaking, is actually a very progressive little town. Oh, yeah, I mean, in, um, in
5: general, New Mexico has been, for what you know, however you consider that progressive or not, is has been blue for quite a while. as in terms of like voting, like it's not, uh, it's not like Texas politically, at
12: least. Right. That's yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. We voted for, we voted for Bush the first time, but have voted blue every election since 2004, like federally. So yeah, in my little stretch of the, of the state, our congressional district has been red, but the city of Las Cruces, which is the, like, we're the biggest city in the Southern part of the state we're the second biggest city in the state, um, our city council has not only been democratic, but like progressively democratic, Mm -hmm. um, we have um, as of this recent election, you know, from the beginning of November, we now have an all-female city council. Um there is uh at least we have um uh wow. one, one, if not two, I'm trying to think, sorry. Currently there are two um folks on the city council who have immigrated from Mexico in their life. Um one will still be on, one is now running for Congress. Um We have um, the school board that currently is sitting is generally progressive and the one we just elected, we just elected our first um, openly queer person onto that school board. Um, Our little group of, of legislators that go up to Santa Fe every year is very progressive. So again, just to kind of reiterate, like Las Cruces, New Mexico, pretty progressive little place. And yet at the school board meeting last week. Um, totally dominated by a public attendance of very far right extremists, um, spouting all kinds of nonsense about all kinds of things. So yeah, it was pretty wild.
5: Yeah, and this—I mean, this has happened. This happened in Portland, Oregon, too, which is also famously—I don't know—I wouldn't call Portland politics progressive, but solidly democratic. Um, right. And the school board meeting gets taken over by by far right activists. This is a yeah. So w- when did you kind of first become aware of this?
12: Well, so um it was it was a weird convergence of my personal and my and my private or I'm sorry, my personal and my professional life, where i um I work for an organization called Progress Now in New Mexico. so it's like, I do progressive politics for a living. but um and, and a colleague who works for the ACLU here had asked if I would go and help lend support uh, to this gender inclusion policy that the school board was going to be. Um, commenting on they weren't voting on it that day. It was what's called a first reading. And she asked if I could go and if I could, you know, just speak. And I was like, Yeah, absolutely, be happy to. So I was gonna go and and talk about this in a uh, per, I'm sorry, professional capacity. And then that day, um, as like before I went to that, um, my daughter, who's in middle school, texted me a picture. A bunch of kids had um on monday of of last week which was um like trans awareness week or trans visibility week th- some kids had shown up wearing trans flags and pride flags mm-hmm. on that monday mm-hmm. the following day that tuesday some kids showed up wearing um thin blue line flags in res- mm-hmm. in response like indirect response yeah um and in my daughter and you know my daughter is aware enough to know what that means so she texted me and was like i can't believe this shit and i was like i know mm-hmm. Um, so then I'm like, right. So then I'm like, okay, well now I want to go speak about this gender inclusion bill or policy personally. Right. Like now it like has impacted me. Um, so I show up at, uh, you know, about an hour before the meeting's supposed to start because the third thing that kind of happened was that I, um, I am, I'm on like a bunch of mailing lists because of my job. And sure enough, the local GOP, um, who is not very active because again, they kind of lose all the time. They sent out a, like, come show up at this thing, you know, email. So I showed up early thinking, okay, well, I want to see if there's going to be something. And at first I was like, Oh, like, I don't think they showed up. I don't think that they turned out. That's good. But it turns out they were all like hiding in their cars so that they could like swarm the building at once. And so then like about half an hour before the meeting, they all walked in at once. and, And like, I, I was already sitting inside the room and, they all came in at once and they took over all the chairs. There was standing room only um, to the point where like the, there was a bunch of FFA kids that were there that were supposed mm-hmm. to be recognized for, you know, FFA something or other. And like they had to kick some people out so that they weren't violating the fire code. Um, <laughs> that's how many, yeah. So anyway, that's kind of how it all, that's the setting for where this all happened. Um, It turns out that at the same meeting, there was going to be a policy discussion on a different policy that had to do with New Mexico's revision of social studies standards. Um, And of course, that got everybody hot and bothered about so-called CRT, which isn't a thing. But um, Mm -hmm. so like they were there. But I mean, but the folks that showed up to speak, I mean, they were all over the place. They were talking about critical race theory. They were talking about the gender inclusion bill and like trans violent the myth of trans violence and um but then of course like like covid protocols and all kinds of i mean just again like way out there stuff um and actually kind of funny i was listening to knowledge fight this morning and and, uh jordan and dan really hit on it that like they have just figured out that these are places they can go and yell and like no one you know like school board people aren't gonna like they're all just these are all just like teachers like retired teachers who are on these school boards and they're like they're not there to just, you know, have these like whatever discussions. So they're not going to, you know, they just like let these people yell and they did. So anyways, it got, it got heated uh, pretty quickly. Cause I mean, again, these people just like go off and they get, they rile themselves up and there's lots of applause. And anyway, that's kind of how it all started, I guess, yeah. or that's what it was.
5: And I mean, has has there have you noticed kind of any sort of mobilization in the community now that this has happened? Because it seems like the first ones of these, at least, always take everybody by surprise. People are not used to still not really used to school board meetings being, um, shall I say, interesting, Um, certainly important, but like not a thing that you have to really be concerned about for the most part. And that's that's changing. Have you seen the community kind of start to adapt to that?
12: Yeah, you know, since so you know, I I put some content out on my you know local Twitter, um, and 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 um got some traction there thanks to sort of your retweet I think, but um, but then the biggest thing was that um, kind of going back to what had happened at my daughter's school that progressed that got worse if you will the following day the Wednesday of last week some kids showed up in an actual Confederate stars and bars flag. Um, which is yeah, that's nuts.
5: Yes, famed um, Confederate state, New Mexico. Right. <laughs> yeah.
12: um, you know, Mesilla, New Mexico, which is right down the road, was it was the capital of the Confederate uh, territory, but
5: um, yeah, but it wasn't a state at that point. Yes. It was not a state. Yeah. Correct. I mean, you do yeah. And
12: I'm not aware of were there
5: battles in New Mexico? In the, I know we had some in like further south Texas than you would think, but I was not yeah. aware of any.
12: There's a couple. There was one f- famously up north called the Battle of Glorieta, and then, oh, um, and then there was one here where I live. It wasn't a battle. It was a bunch of Confederates got um, stranded and super drunk, and then uh, couldn't cross the desert fast enough, so they got stranded up in the mountains at a place called Baylor Canyon. And the Conf- and they, they get to the top, and like the North was just sitting there, like waiting for them, and was like, "Well, you're captured now."
5: <laughs> well, see, that's clearly that's some history. Worth celebrating right there. Oh, Um, yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
12: I think that the biggest, like one of the scariest, but biggest things is like, and this goes towards the, this is a slight tangent, but like the social studies revision, for instance, in the state of New Mexico, uh, there are two paragraphs in our history book about the Gadsden purchase. Um, like I live in the chunk that is the Gadsden purchase and, um, like the Gadsden purchase is at, like James Gaston was a notorious racist who left the South and took all of his railroad money, went to California and Mexico lobbying hard using his influence and money to try to create a slave state in Baja, Mexico. <laughs> like that's what he was trying wow. to do. And like that part of the, that part of the context of why the Gaston purchase even happened is like totally left out of history books. And it's like, if anywhere it should be taught, it should be taught in the place that is called the Gaston Purchase when it comes to the United States. So, yeah. Anyway, just a little tangent there. Why it's important to have context in history. Um, so, sorry, going back to my daughter's school and these kids wearing the stupid stars and bars. So um, that I so like I went and spoke to the assistant principal and was like, so I understand that your answer to this was to ban all flags. Yeah. And he was like and he was like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, because they're causing a disruption to education. And I was like, mm, Yeah, but I you know, I think I feel like you're giving the false equivalency to like, you know, gender a- and and pride acknowledgement to and and versus the actual Confederate hate symbols. Flag. Yeah. yeah.
5: It's it's I mean, it's this constant this has happened in a couple of places, including a town in Oregon, where it's like this is sort of the the centrist and kind of the right wing solution to this. It's just that like well, if if kids can't wear ra- racist hate flags, then uh, gay kids can't wear a flag that uh, says that their existence is valid. Uh, you know, because those are the same thing. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, it's frustrating.
12: It is frustrating. So that was not my favorite thing. Um, and so then the culmination of that this week was that my daughter's social studies teacher, who had allowed the kids in her class to make little paper flags after the real flags were banned, Mm-hmm. um was fired.
5: Jesus Christ.
12: And um because it's a personnel matter no one is willing to tell me more. I have I've called the president of the school bo- uh, school board who'd actually in all fairness he doesn't actually probably have that much sway over these kinds of things.
5: I would imagine I, that happened at a level a level that was not his, but yeah. Yeah,
12: but I I mean but I but I have anyway. So I did call him. I also called the school mm-hmm. and got very little information from them obviously. So, you know, who knows, but Again, like that's how it was perceived from the kids in her class, yeah, um, and that so like what we know happened is that we know that after the flags got banned, she let kids make flags out of paper and hang them up, and by Friday, she was gone, so like nice. not a great response, no, um, not
5: not not ideal, not ideal, yeah,
12: yeah. So anyway, that's kind of where we left that. But I guess maybe what maybe what I should say to get back to your original question, which is to say, like, have we seen a mobilization? That yeah, like, so I alerted the the newspaper, the reporter is, who that teacher, like a couple weeks ago, had actually been in the newspaper because she had also like, um, she she spearheaded this like response, like a, a poor, like a girl who wore a hijab to school had been bullied. And, like, when news got around in the school, like, the, like, the majority of the student body and this teacher, like, went up and above out of their way to make her feel welcome and, like, walk her to her class. And, like, it, it got kind of viral on local TikTok. So, like, this teacher got quoted in the newspaper. So, I, like, called the, I called the report. I tweeted the newspaper. And I was, like, I was "Like you guys know that the teacher who was in, like, starlit in your article is fired for, allowing kids to voice their thoughts on about these flags things. Right. Yeah. And they were like, no, we didn't know. And I was like, you should probably find more. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I don't know where we're going to be at now. The next reading for the gender inclusion policy is um, the 14th of December. So we've got a couple of weeks before that next school board meeting. Um, I think that on my end, like there's going to be some local organizing to try to get some uh, better, more inclusive voices to be a part of things. Um I don't, you know, I don't know what the interim will hold. Um, because it's like, you know, it's the holidays and there's a lot going on and you know, Kyle Rittenhouse and Build Back Better. I mean, there's like, you know, there's always a million things happening. So it'll, you know, there will have to be some drum beating to like get people to show up to that. But on the other hand, I think with some of the momentum we have and I think people will show up in mass for the 14th, um, in support at least. This is the kind of community that in general, we have shown up and shown out to support, you know, these kinds of issues in the past. But I do think that up until now, people felt pretty asleep about it.
5: Yeah, and, I mean, and hopefully you do see the kind of response you're expecting. Can you walk me through sort of how the 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 kind of attempts like you talked about getting the local media aware of what had happened to that teacher? Um, how are people like? What does the actual organizing effort look like on the ground? Like, how are you trying? How are you and, and others trying to get the word out so that you know there's a response to this?
12: Yeah. So I think that um, the first thing is is that there was there was a problem with the way that the school board handled public comment that first time in an attempt to help limit uh, their own sort of exposure to some of the toxic stuff they knew was coming their way. They had um, they had instituted a, a limit on public comment. Um, you had to show up by a certain time and fill out these little pieces of paper saying that you were there to comment about something. And if you weren't there, then you couldn't sign up. And the problem was was that all these like old white male <laughs> retirees who are sitting around listening to Alex Jones all day, they had nothing better to do than show up to this meeting at three o'clock in the afternoon. Whereas a bunch of, for instance, teachers, students, parents um, they were busy because they were in school or like picking their kids up from school. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the things that we're going to try to do is get public comment uh ahead of time. And we're going to try to like bombard the, not bombard that's a, that's a violent word, but we're going to try to like just make sure that, Um, voices from the community that hadn't been represented are represented and sent to the school board ahead of time. Um, I think we're going to try to go and save physical space ahead of time for those of us that can, right. For those of us that can, we'll go and we'll try to save physical space. And we did learn that even if they keep that um, policy for the little forms, we can um, we can actually give that time. We can fill out other people's names. Right. So we're going to try to like make sure that we have better voices that was one of the things if you listen to the recording of what I said at that meeting, um, I asked the school board president if it's possible for me to yield my time, because it had literally been like a dozen white men up there spouting nonsense. And then I get up there and I'm like, yeah, hey, um, we've heard from enough white men. Can we have like a member of the trans community or one of the women of color who are here to talk about this? um but couldn't get here in time and their their legal team was like oh no like you didn't sign up in time or whatever so um but it turns out we could have put their names down ahead of time so we're going to try to organize that thing so that people can show up and save you know physical space um and then um i think the other thing too is to try to involve some other local elected officials from the county and city level cuz again we have these really amazing Progressive candidates who have come from all walks of life, including immigrants and members of the LGBTQA community. Um, So having them come and speak in their official capacity, um, I think will carry a lot of weight um, for the both for the school board, but also just for the public to hear from those voices.
5: Yeah where are these, like, have you, have you gotten any kind of research on where the people showing up are coming from? Are these like folks within your community or are these people coming from kind of outlying areas um, to swarm these meetings? Like, is there, is there kind of an active research contingent?
12: I mean, that's part of what I do. Uh, it's part of, part of my job with Progress Now in New Mexico. My, my title is energy policy director. I usually spend most of my day talking about oil and gas stuff. However, I've been doing this job long enough that before I became that person, I was actively researching and tracking a lot of white supremacy activity in the in the state, especially along uh, the border. Some of the border militia stuff a couple years back. Yeah. Um, so, I, in that regard, uh, I knew an, I knew a number of these folks. A lot of them do live in the city, but so our our county is considered rural by the census, even though we're a city of 100,000 people. But we're a big county, so there's a, there's 200,000 people here. So yeah. uh, um, so there's, you know, it's it's hard to tell how many people may or may not have lived in, for instance, the public school district. But what I can tell you like hands down is that of those dozen folks that spoke before I did, like there's no way that at least, I mean, maybe one or two of them had kids that could have gone through the Las Cruces public school system, but like the majority of them far and away, like either aren't from here at all or you know, they've lived here for a long time, but they are they are not active parents or even grandparents of kids that live and will go to school in this, in this district. They're just, they're just agitated right wingers.
5: Yeah. And it's, how does this all tie in? Cause New Mexico's had, I think it's kind of been on the back burner in terms of like national attention, but y'all have had some really significant dust-ups, not just with, you know, the border militias for years, there have been violent um, acts and, and even murders as the result of that stuff going on. But like during Last year's the protest over George Floyd's murder, y'all had some really ugly, uh, it was, shall we say, dueling rallies where like right wingers shot at people um, and, and some really some nasty situations. I'm wondering, are like those folks like are you seeing that kind of organization being brought into the the school board meeting or is this just kind of bubbling up as part of the same stew?
12: It is. Yeah, it, they're, it's loosely affiliated for sure. Um, and and the crossover, the crossover is hard to tell. Dep- I mean, what am I trying to say? There's there is crossover. It's hard to tell how on purpose it is or sort of the fact that this is like a small population community state. Right. So what I, what I mean by that is, is that some of the some of the physical white supremacists who showed up last year at one of our um, BLM support. You know, George Floyd related um, peaceful protests who they showed up at a parking lot across the street, you know, armed long guns, tack vests, all that kind of stuff, who that those were the folks that when i when I went and filmed them and and put them on blast to to try and sort of out them as best we possibly could, or at least identify them. Um, they came back and doxed me. Uh, as, and then went after um, a number of my colleagues up up north in Albuquerque. That was about a week before there was the there was a shooting of a of a um, anti-fascist protester in Albuquerque.
8: Mm-hmm.
12: And and it was during sort of all of that stuff that I was like trying to talk about all this out loud um, and got tied in to a few more other anti-fascist voices in the state. So since then we've all been kind of working together. Um, we found each other on Twitter, thankfully. And um, so, so what it seems like is, is that like the folks that showed up to the uh, school board meeting were what I'll call usual suspects, like politically active old, you know, right wingers. That being said, um, in that room, there were a number of people that I've identified as showing up to anti-vax rallies, uh, a number of the Trump train rallies that happened last year before the election. And at least one person who I recognized as being, I have never seen carry a firearm, but like has been at rallies where people were carrying firearms and and that kind of thing um, in response to these, you know, in response to like peaceful protests. So there is crossover for sure.
5: Where do you see this going? Like, because you've been kind of paying attention to this for a while, not just the school board stuff, but just kind of the general problem of right wing. organizing in your area like where do you where do you see this heading within kind of the context of New Mexico
12: well I mean so just I mean we haven't really talked about this but like so while while here in Las Cruces we did really well um, during the November election in terms of our school board we reelected elected yeah. a really good progressive uh, school board president and two new good progressive candidates including like I said the first you know queer openly queer person so that's amazing however up in Albuquerque, uh, they lost seats to some of these far right wing um, candidates, and um, so the Albuquerque school board is um, not um, not looking as good <laughs> uh, politically. So I mean, so on the like, I guess what I'd say is on the soft end, what I expect is more continued pressure in sort of the um, the 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 way these things are supposed to happen, which is to say, like. Continued presence of the right wing folks at meetings, yelling, taking up space, um, slowing things down, running for office when the time comes. You know those kinds of things. I see. Um, I guess I wouldn't be surprised though if, um, if I if there were further escalation of things um, in a you know in in the way we've seen other places in terms of some sort of a you know an armed response or somebody showing up. Um, you know new mexico is an open carry state and so people can walk around with guns all the time um and and you know i mean that's the other thing too is like while i didn't see anybody with an open carried firearm at the school board meeting there were guys wearing like you know vortex optics brand hats
6: yeah
9: thin
12: blue blue line shirts a guy with like a remington shirt you know and and like i don't begrudge anybody from gun culture i'm you know I'm, i'm a lefty with a gun so it's like i i get gun culture but like when you show up in those things and in those spaces with that kind of, yeah, you're on, making a point. Yep. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> yeah,
5: yeah. You're, you're, you're not the, the, yeah, yeah. I, I get that. Um, have you, is there some kind of, have you seen like any kind of budding left wing armed response? Like, is there, do you guys have like an organized group of folks who have been showing up, um, when there are armed
12: protests in the area? Um, I, I mean, I always have my gear with me. Um, I mean, I've got, I've got a ceramic plate. I've got my, you know, rifle and pistol. I, I, I am a member of a number of different groups. I've been a member of the SRA. Um, I've, I've worked with some of the armed groups up in Albuquerque. So de-
5: The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game.
4: I want to be remembered
1: for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not minute, without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Judy was boring. Hello. Then
9: Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com.
4: It's my little escape.
9: Now Judy's the life of the party.
4: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
9: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs) Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
12: On here, there hasn't been a ton, but um, I've got a I've got what I'll call a loose affiliation with a number of folks that I would trust to to be armed if need be. Thankfully, that hasn't happened yet. Thankfully, the the one big, big protest that happened here in Las Cruces that I was sort of nervous about and I did have my gear for remained peaceful. And, and we, you know, we took over some streets and blocked traffic for a couple hours and there was never any violent response from anybody other than maybe like one car at one point trying to push through and car got banged on and that was about it. But um, so, so, so to, to answer your question, like, yes, there are those of us that are left wing and armed. And there are those of us that have been able to show out if we needed to. Thankfully we haven't had to at this point.
5: Yeah. Well, all right. I think that's everything I had to ask. Is there anything else you wanted to to get to, to make sure to talk about today?
12: Well, I just, I mean, I, I would be, I would be um, not doing the, the best of my job if I didn't mention the fact that like one of the, so one of the talking points of the right wing here at our school board is that New Mexico's education system is, is 51st in the country. And I, the, the, my assumption is that that has to do with DC's public schools being counted. Jesus, <laughs> um, um, so yeah, it's not, that's not a great. Re- yeah, that's not a it, great record. Yeah, it's not. A, it's not a great record. And um, and and I and I, you know, as a parent of a kid who's in the public schools, I, uh, you know, I cannot ignore that, right? That's a, so. That's a legitimate talking point. But the but the thing that they want to bring it about is that you know they're, you know, it's because we're trying to be gender inclusive. It's because We're trying to, like, you know, teach kids about, like, actual history that happened, whatever. Um, And the reality is it's because our education system is, unlike most places, funded by the oil and gas industry and not by, like, our communities. Um, And so, like, you know, 18 months ago, oil prices crashed, right? Yep the state of New Mexico had to have an emergency special session for our legislature to figure out how we were going to like fund things like cops and schools and like whatever. Um, And then like now, you know, oil and gas is like gangbusters and we're, you know, record prices and like the state of New Mexico has this like surplus budget. But the thing is, is that like that, that extra money that we're going to get this time doesn't make up for the like cyclical bad, you know, way that we fund our schools. So I just want to like tie in that like like all of these things tie in together, right? Like we can't yeah. talk about education in New Mexico without talking about the oil and gas funding. And so anyway, so like because that's my you know that's part of the reason why I was going to go sh- talk about this stuff at the on my professional level is that like I get to talk about education as an as an energy expert in the state of New Mexico because energy and inter- education are so intertwined here. Um, and like when you have literal like Koch brothers founded um, and, and um, like monetarily supplied think tanks in the state of New Mexico who are pushing out this kind of propaganda and encouraging people. So that there's a group called the um, Rio Grande Foundation and like another one called Power of the Future uh PTA, yeah, Power of the Future, New Mexico. Like both of those organizations are like tied to the Koch brothers because the Koch brothers are tied to oil and they're pushing these right wing talking points. Um, and it's all part and parcel of just like, you know, clouding the information space. That's what they want to do. They yeah. want to have they want to have the news cycle dominated with things like CRT and gender inclusion studies to, you know, to tie up things like school boards so that so that the electorate is busy talking about these things. while meanwhile, they're just raking in money hand over fist, um, you know, stealing our oil. (laughs) So anyway, I just, that's so important to me to like make those connections, um, especially in this state. And it's something that a lot of people don't consider and don't think about. And it's just really important to me that people understand that. So,
5: yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much, Lucas. This has been I, I'm not going to say fun, but certainly enlightening <laughs> and I think valuable, a good, a good dispatch from, um, you know, a, a a fight that we, we continue to see is important here and that everybody should be paying attention to both wherever it happens, including in Las Cruces and around the country. Um, cause they ain't giving up, um, and they can't be ignored. Um,
12: yeah. And that's, yeah. And, I, you know, and you've mentioned this many times over the years, but like, that's the kind of thing is like, we have to show up, um, yeah, we, we can't just let them have these spaces. And, um, and I think that see, this, this past school board meeting was a great example of why. Um, and, and I'm, I'm really counting on a lot of my, my, my friends and and close, you know, the, the, the folks that I have come to love and support in this community um, to show up and show out for that, because that's, you know, we've been there, right? we like I said, you know, and if you look up Las Cruces politics over the years on the news cycle, like, you'll see stories about our you know, progressive city council and passing a living wage and, you know, banning mm-hmm. plastic bags. I mean, like all these, like, you know, we've, we've tried, we've, we've, we've tried to be that kind of little community. And, um, and, and yet, you know, these folks are still there and they're still allowed. And if we give them the space, they will take those spaces over. So.
5: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So,
12: so thanks for having me on. Let me talk about this. Yeah. It really means well, a lot.
5: Thank you for stepping up. Cause it is, this is the thing that's a giant pain in the butt um, is that, everybody's got a lot going on. Life is yeah. complicated. There's all sorts of shit to do in the old world. Um, but every time these fascists and their their affiliates decide they're going to try to take over something, you know, as busy as people are, as exhausting as it is, you do have to, like, they can't just be allowed to do it. Like, that's how they win, is they have, they have unlimited energy for this shit. And um, if they're not, like, the thing that causes them to lose energy is actually um, being... Outnumbered and shown to be like 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 being kind of pushed out by communities. Um, you can yeah. do it. It takes it it, but it requires people showing up.
12: Yes, that's exactly right. So, um, I appreciate the signal boost. Mm-hmm. Uh, means a lot to me. Uh, and this yeah, has are been there great. any local orgs that people can support? So big shout out to a group called Cafe here in uh, in Las Cruces that works on all kinds of border issues, immigrant rights, but also like workers rights and um, immigrant, like student rights, migrant student rights. Um, they've been very active in this for a long time. Um, and so, yeah, I'd definitely shout out Cafe uh, here in, here in I mean, all of New Mexico, but specifically in Southern New Mexico, they're doing a lot of work. And then um, uh, Dreams in Action, which is uh, part of a national network for dreamers. But um, again, here in New Mexico have done a lot of good work.
5: Okay, yeah, thank you very much, Lucas. All right, Um, and that is going to do it for us here at It Could Happen Here. Um, Until next time, go, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, hang out at a school board meeting.
12: (laughs) (laughs) Go take up space from fascists. Yeah, go take up space
5: from fascists in general.
2: The Black Effect Presents features honest conversations and exclusive interviews. A space for artists, everyday people, and listeners to amplify, elevate, and empower Black voices with great conversations. Make sure to listen to the Black Effect Presents podcast on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts I call the union hall. I said, it's a matter of life and death. I think these people are planning to kill Dr. King.
1: On April 4th, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King was shot and killed in Memphis. A petty criminal named James Earl Ray was arrested. He pled guilty to the crime and spent the rest of his life in prison. Case closed. Right? James Earl Ray was a pawn for the official story.
13: The authorities would parade, oh, we found a gun that James Earl Ray bought in Birmingham
2: that killed Dr. King. Except it wasn't the gun that killed Dr. King. One of the problems that came out when I got the Ray case was that some of the evidence, as far as I was concerned, did not match the circumstances.
1: This is the MLK Tapes. The first episodes are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Welcome back to "It Could Happen Here," the podcast about you know the problems and stuff that are happening and how to maybe make them better. And speaking of the problems that are happening and how to make them better, Garrison Davis. Hi, hello, hey that's, Chris. That's
7: a hello. that's a weird segue
5: wanted to introduce this video by telling you guys that I just watched a movie that you should watch because it's pretty rad. And it ties into all the things we talk about. It's called The Pizzagate Massacre. And oh, it is, no. It is a micro-budget, under $100,000 film that looks great. They did a really good job with the budget they had. About... Um, a, an Alex Jones employee type person and a mass shooter who go looking for, uh, uh, to try to solve the pizza gate thing. Oh um, boy. It is a, an actually very nuanced and I think deeply knowledgeable commentary on specifically like the Texan conspiracy scene. Like it's a, it, like, okay. they're Alex Jones character. Who's played by a woman in this. They film in the original studio that he recorded in back at the, oh, that's Hall. funny like the the filmmaker who did this gets like the culture in the area and kind of the relationship between the people who get radicalized and do shit and the people who just profit from it. It's a very good. Movie. um it's it is, by the way, a grindhouse horror movie. Like whatever you're expecting, it's not that. It is like a it is a an incredibly gory grindhouse movie. um but it's it's pretty it's pretty fun.
7: What does that have to do with cop twenty six?
5: Nothing at all, but it has a lot to do with it could happen here because
7: okay. All right.
5: <laughs> it's in my well, head. Go watch
7: it. Anyway, um this is a good Happen here a show about how things are kind of falling apart and how we can uh, maybe slow that down or, or prepare for a, yeah. uh, an uncertain future. Um the, you the, want the fir- to do an
5: episode about cops, right? I mean, N- fuck them.
7: I mean, we are we are planning an episode on Washington uh, State Patrol. Mm-hmm. Um but no, this is episode is about you. a different a different kind of cop about just as useful. Um so, in the first five episodes of The of the Daily Show, or season two, which if you haven't listened to, you should definitely listen to those as, the, as they kind of act as our show's manifesto of sorts. But nevertheless, uh, the first five episodes of The Scripted Daily Show put forth like a more like realistic, non-sugar-coated look at what climate change will bring if we continue on our current course. Um, but not just looking at the obvious environmental and extreme weather effects, but also like the socio-political effects. So when I was helping Robert out with the research for those episodes, uh, some of the best indicators of like the mainstream conception of the scientific environmental and political status of climate change was at the United Nations uh, past uh, uh, IPCC reports, which is the intergovernmental panel on climate change and the COP conferences. So, During the first few weeks of this past November, of November 2021, the 26th annual COP conference took place in Glasgow. Um, And yeah, the name of the conference is kind of a decent indication on how useful these things actually are. Uh, (laughs) But uh, a COP stands for a Conference of the Parties. And for almost three decades, they've been like the main international stage uh for uh, for countries and companies to discuss climate related information and like their alleged like goals um so yeah they're a good indicator not unlike sometimes they do present actual good science and like decent predictions but they're often just like a good indication of what kind of the mainstream people think about what climate change is and you know what the people in power how they are viewing it and how urgent they think it's worth addressing versus how much money they want to spend on it. So the the most notable uh, COP in recent memory was the 2015 one in uh, Paris, COP21. This is kind of where the uh, Paris Climate Accords were born. Uh, the commitment was to aim for 1.5 degrees of warming, and it was signed on by nearly all major countries. Of course, the U.S. signed on, left, then re-signed on, but anyway, un, un, under the Paris Agreement, uh, countries committed to bring forth like uh, national plans, uh, figure, figuring out how they would reduce their emissions. Uh, but they would do it like by themselves, and they would be called uh, NDCs, or Nationally Determined Contributions. And the idea was for every five years, countries would gather up and present their current plans on the national stage. This was what COP twenty six was going to be. Now it was delayed a year because of the pandemic, but COP twenty six was the time for countries to present their uh, NDCS on and for, for like their updated versions on their plans to reduce emissions. So uh, most of the NDCS got submitted uh, before the conference and kind of led the discussion of the conference. Um, by like mid October, uh, I think about seventy uh, percent uh, of the uh, countries or uh, you know states that signed on to the paris agreement submitted their submitted their version of the ndcs and 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 th- those countries about 140 of them are responsible for the majority of global emissions so that that, that was what kind of led up to to cop 26 from happening um and the, the overarching aim of the conference according to uh cop 26 president um I'm going to try to pronounce this name, um, Alok uh, Sharma, um, he he said that the 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 idea for the conference was to like keep alive the 2015 uh, Paris Agreement's target to to keep global temperatures from rising above 1.5 uh, degrees Celsius uh, above pre-industrial levels. So th- that was that was like the goal of the conference going into it was to kind of keep this idea of the Paris Climate Accords of still being achievable. Um, and that's and that's not what happened at COP twenty six. Um Now it's 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 important to kind of point out that the the commitments laid out in the Paris uh, Accords don't come close to limiting global warming to one point five degrees, as it is said in the Accords. Like like they they, they acknowledge that, um, which is what the kind of NDCs are for. But even still, those are just non th- those are those are just non binding agreements. But Anyway, so the the accord, the accords, and the the restrictions and goals, and well, there, there's no restrictions; it's just goals. The goals in them don't don't come close to limiting to one point five degrees, and we've already most likely uh, shot way past the point of that being in any way achievable. Um, but you know, we can still limit things from being mega bad, like four degrees. But we are we are already on a certain path, so. In, in asking nations to set tougher targets by uh, next year for cutting climate warming emissions, the uh, new agreement at Glasgow uh, uh, acknowledged that the commitments that were in place are inadequate, and if rigorously followed, the, 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 the new national pledges, so include the stuff including the Paris Accords and the new Glasgow Pact, um, and all of the individual like uh, uh, NDCs, if all of those are followed... The world is now on track for uh, 2.1 to 2.4 degrees Celsius of warming by the end of the century, and that is the lower estimate. As we'll see later on, uh, higher estimates were also um, uh, shown at at the uh, at the Glasgow conference. So we have th- the idea was to hopefully keep it to 1.5, and already we're pushing that back by almost a whole a whole degree if we're going to like 2.4. Um, so that that's that's like the main the, the one of the main impacts there is like just totally kissing 1.5 goodbye like no what no one even is going to view that as a possibility at this point huh? so i i don't know how many people were still looking at that as a really a goal apparently some pe- of the planners of COP26 apparently were <laughs> um but i mean i know for us we've we've been aware of that and i'm, I'm not sure how you know really what mainstream liberals were thinking before this but hopefully at the very least maybe cop 26 made them realize that maybe it's there's a this kind of it's it's maybe worse than what you were thinking um but so there there other things did happen at at, at glasgow that are that are worth looking into um so the the main quote unquote achievements of the, of the Glasgow deal, uh, besides like revisiting the emissions cutting plans to try to keep stuff down, which of course were you know not 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 met and shot way past, um, but there we also had the first ever inclusion of a uh, commitment to uh, limit coal use. Now the way phrasing is going to work here is going to be really interesting because the reason why this deal got passed is because some very specific uh, shifts in their phrasing around coal Use um, the other thing that CO- that COP twenty six tried to do was increase uh, financial help for so called developing countries and provide funds and assistance for like climate disasters. So like when cl- when like extreme weather events happen, have a set of funds uh, set aside to help countries in these disasters. Now those are that that is a good idea, but uh, as we'll see later, the way COP twenty six actually did it is not actually. Doing it, it's like they're 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 pushing they're they're postponing this kind of goal, but they're just making it a, a prospect. But back to coal. So the Glasgow Climate Pact was the first ever climate deal to explicitly plan to reduce coal, which was a, a one one of the worst like fossil fuels uh for, for greenhouse gases um and 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 coal really can be phased out Co- coal can be phased out by um electric power really easily it 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 it, it's, it is the easiest one um it's, it it's, it's way easier to phase out coal than it is uh natural gas or uh, other um or uh sorry what's the the the, uh, the the other main one there's three there's uh coal natural gas what's what's the last one regular gas i guess so yeah yeah petroleum-based stuff yeah. um yeah so the coals because coal is mostly used for heat um electrically generated heat is way is way easier than uh, all than the, those other two so coal coal really should be phased out as soon as possible um but the commitment to phase out coal that was introduced in earlier negotiations um, led to some fighting uh, specifically among India and China, who were uh, in in strong opposition to the phrasing and the actual constraints of, of the deal. Um, and a, a, a lot of this is, like, the argument that, like, if these countries are still developing, it's not fair to them to remove this resource when other developed nations had it. So that, you know, that, that's that's we see that argument a lot around like climate change stuff. Is like, oh, you, you're just going to stop other countries from developing because you 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 got to get to this certain point of being a successful like wealthy nation, um, and like you know, with all this like in, industrial development on the back of fossil fuels and stuff. But so now you're going to remove that opportunity for other countries. Now, there is there is um, a lot of stuff around like degrowth frameworks that address this issue and specifically try to uh, try to get um, fossil fuel savings, like a decrease in emissions and be able to use some some of those gains to assist countries in getting stuff set up to a decent standard of living. Um, but, you know, th- that is going to be addressed on a whole nother scale around like capitalism and and how countries intervene in other countries—that that's part of like a bigger political question. But anyway, um, India and China did not like the, did not like the coal deal. Um, so in the end, the countries did agree to uh, phase down coal rather than phase out coal. So that 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 is the phrase that they ended up using is phase down. Um, the, uh, the people weren't super happy about this. Uh, the COP twenty six president. Um, Alec uh, Sharma said that he was uh, deeply sorry for how these events unfolded, and like focus on coal is good. It's it's, it's responsible for about forty percent of annual CO two emissions, but also like just focusing on coal leaves a really big lack of discussion on oil and gas. Like there's like those are also like very bad, yeah. and <laughs> arguably we should be focusing on those a lot. Like those are th- those are the main ones. We should get, we should get rid of coal yes, but if we just focus on that, then there's a lot of other stuff going on so that is that is a lot of coal talk uh you know who also uses coal our sponsors yeah
5: we're entirely sponsored by Joe Mansion um yes. big friend of the pod uh thank you thank you for always having our
7: back joe anyway here's some ads and we are back talking about uh cop 26 and there is there is a decent there stuff stuff did happen so and i know it, it is going to be more of a a sciency and numbers episode but it it is worth actually figuring out what what happened there because all everyone just kind of had the perception like oh cop 26 was a failure because yeah it was um but it's it's it is good to know what actually is going on at things like this because if we're going to get some kind of you know liberal change this is where it's going to happen so it is good to keep an eye on what these types of people are thinking so we we left off on talking about how their plans to phase down coal and there was like a general lack of focus on oil and gas and it is interesting um if you <laughs> so there was a a a, a group of uh, activists uh led by this uh, uh I think, I think it's like an NGO called uh, Glo- Glo- Global Witness, um, assessed the participant list published by the UN at the start of the meeting. And they found that uh, there was 503 people uh, with links to fossil fuel interests who were like accredited uh, members of the climate summit. And, so, and they were like delegates. So COP26 delegates associated with fossil fuels outnumbered national delegate numbers for every other country. So there were more people representing fossil fuel interests than there were representing any individual country at mm. COP twenty six. So you're thinking, Great huh? System. Maybe maybe I wonder why this stuff's not going too good. Oh, it's because it's being run mostly by fossil fuel companies? Yep. That's that's uh Huh. Oh. That's an interesting interesting little thing there. Um Yeah. So the, the, the other the other kind of notable thing about cop 26 is uh it uh it it led to a quote-unquote breakthrough in the rules for uh, government-led carbon markets so this is the thing that the neoliberals are really excited about is this idea of carbon markets because it's a way to make more money kind of off of removing carbon and just to create a lot of red tape and bureaucracy around this idea of of lowering emissions. So, I guess one of the ways to describe carbon markets if you're kind of unfamiliar with this idea is that uh countries that do not meet their emission reduction targets in their national climate pledges are like uh penalized for this. Um so, so countries that countries that don't meet their emission targets or, or want to just pursue like less less uh, expansive emission cuts, what 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 this deal set out to do is that instead of actually lowering emissions, they can purchase like emissions reduction tokens and credits from other nations that have cut their emissions more than the amount that they pledged. Uh, So like by, you know, moving to low carbon energy and various stuff. So the turn of phrase that people were using to discuss this to how you, you can like purchase purchase credits to represent emissions that you didn't cut but wanted to is that this can potentially unlock trillions of dollars for protecting forests, expanding renewable energy, and other projects to combat climate change. Um, so the idea here is that the money used to purchase these credits is going to get put into other things that will help fight climate change. But all of this is non-binding and speculative, and yeah, it just it, furthers this whole carbon market concept, which I'm not thrilled about. Um, yeah, we, we should we should do like a full episode on carbon markets. But the, the, the thing so
8: I I, I I this is you know, this is the thing I studied academically in college and is incredibly important for everyone to understand that carbon markets are fake and do not work at all ever, yeah. no yeah. one has ever gotten for, one to work, reference. no one's ever gotten a national one to work, no one's ever gotten an international one to work. Uh, I- implementation of carbon markets, like China did, had a big thing where they're going to implement a carbon market. Uh, it was fake. It didn't work. Their carbon emissions still increase. Very, very, very like important. Like
5: <laughs> how fucking carbon markets can be. So you get carbon credits if you're a business like Tesla that makes no emission electronic vehicles. And Tesla, for a lot of its earlier history, made a significant chunk of its profits selling carbon credits to polluting industries and yeah. basically saying, you guys keep polluting. We got your back. Like the the fact that we're putting electric cars out onto the street means you guys can keep emitting at the same level. Like that's that's that literally yeah, how how kind of the the business can work. It's it's not the best way to fix the problem.
7: Yeah, so there was a lot of a lot of talk was around carbon markets, um, because that's of course what the neoliberal establishment neoliberal establishment is 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 going to focus on because it it still is within their kind of worldview. Um how do we monetize the rot? Yeah, how do we how do we make money off of the world ending? Um, which I guess we're gonna see a lot more of that. Uh in the next, in the next few decades, um, the the other the other thing that they decided on is uh, uh, next year. There's gonna there's gonna be again. So there's there's they they decided to procrastinate, which is just a, ge- a general theme of COP conferences. I mean, it's is, what we've been
5: doing. With, it's what everyone's been doing yeah. about climate change
7: since yeah. forever yeah so yeah the, the the main thing they do is decide to procrastinate um so uh, next year there's going to be a un committee to report on progress towards delivering a uh, 100 billion dollar per year in uh, promised climate funding uh this was after rich nations failed to deliver on the 2020 deadline for said funds um And then financing is going to be discussed again in 2024 and 2026 at those conferences. Um, But this this deal left a lot of uh, more vulnerable nations uh, who were going to rely on this promised funding uh, kind of just they just left them with nothing. So the whole idea was that, like, yeah, we need this funding to help people in these disasters and different like losses and damages and to help, you know, start start making more um, renewable energy technology. In lieu of doing tons of tons of coal mining, and that's where this money was going to get used for, and it's not happening. Um, so, th- this this promise was initially made at a UN uh, a conference on climate change in 1992, and we're still we're still pushing it back year by year. So, this pledge is older than I am. Yeah, it sure yeah. is. Another pledge made in 2009 to provide $100 billion to emerging economies was supposed to be made in 2020. That also was missed, um, and it was, it was designed to help nations uh, adapt to climate effects and make the transition to clean energy. Um, and uh, the, the uh, COP26 president said that around $500 billion will be mobilized by 2025. So, cool. Uh, thanks for saying those numbers, which mean nothing. Yeah, it's fun it's, it's fun how you can just talk and say things and it doesn't actually matter. It's it's one of the things that's so frustrating about this is trying to get a handle on like
5: how how a lot of these solutions are supposed to work. So like one of the articles if you're trying to actually uh, if you're not just taking our word for it, which you never should, and trying to research like carbon credits and and carbon markets and like how they might work or might help. Like one of the articles you're going to come across is uh, an article in nature.org called Making Carbon Markets Work for Faster Climate Action. And this is very much obvious, at least from 2021. So it's pretty, it's pretty recent. And it's not at all a, a climate denial piece. It's, it's just kind of laying out a case for how carbon markets could be very effective at uh, reducing emissions. But you, you have to grapple the whole time you're looking at this with the fact that like, they they haven't that they that haven't. Uh, global global emissions are still sh- and they, they they provide a number of like options for how this could work and it's one of those things where i'm not going to say it's impossible i'm certainly not an expert on this and you can read through the article um if you want but it it it's it's certainly certainly the, the thing you can say right now is that carbon markets have not led to a global decrease in emissions because we we have not had emissions decrease other than that little dip we had when uh covid uh uh did its its sweet little dance but, yeah
7: that one month where we could actually see the sky again
5: yeah it, that was pretty rad um but yeah there's there's i mean you you can check that article out for kind of the pro-carbon markets case uh it all seems i mean one of the things that's f- frustrating to me about it is it all it, it's all like yeah uh here's how it might work if you know everybody got on board the paris climate agreement and also all of this worked ideally but there's there just doesn't seem to be a lot of i I, i just don't see any evidence that like they've shown that this is actually likely to be helpful um it's more just like yeah this this could this could work if if we do these other things um which is frustrating. That's like all, all of the kind of shit that you get at, at, at COP26, where it's like, yeah, I guess theoretically, if you were to do that, or if that were to work the way you're saying, or if that were to work with the assumption that like all these other factors don't grow over this period of time, then, then this might help. But we also know what's happened with emissions and global attempts to reduce climate change. Um, which is not to say that like, Like emissions in the United States, like there have been there's been a lot that's been done to curb emissions from the United States. Now, the thing that's often left out of like the discussion of these different things and how they impacted our emissions is like, well, a lot of those emissions got pushed off to other countries that are now making the things that we were making for. Yes, like
7: that's the big thing when people argue against degrowth and they're like, no, you can you can still keep growing your economy while lowering emissions like, yeah, one country can, but we still want the stuff, so we're just moving it to other countries to produce. So, like, we're not actually lowering it on a global level. You can lower, you can lower it on, like, an individual country level, but not totally globally, because we still want to consume the thing.
8: This One of the single most frustrating things about talking to people about climate change is that... Okay, you know, if, if you talk to the sort of neoliberal carbon market people, right, if you talk about literally anything else, right, the only thing they ever talk about is how the entire world is interconnected, how the entire economy is interconnected, how we're more interconnected than ever. And then the moment you start talking about climate change, they go, oh, well, it's all the individual country, individual country, individual country. The economy is not connected at all. It's all uh, about the individual policy. Yeah. In the country. And it's like, no, it's not. The, it's, it's about like all, all, all of the like the, 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 the emissions are foreign direct investment driven right it's about it's, it's about it's about it's about where investment money is going and you cannot and you know this 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 is why cop in some ways like this is why it doesn't work and even though it's the only framework that could work right you have to have an international response it has to be coordinated it has to be working across national lines because again that's how the economic system works but it doesn't because a states individual states can't and will not ever solve this and then b COP is like okay so here's here's your international framework but also we're just going to have you know the actual the the, the, the actual international framework is going to be just essentially hammered up by a bunch of fossil fuel companies and so it's just you know it's it's the worst of both worlds
5: i mean it's it and it you can see there's there's some kind of acknowledgement at the the fact that this is an international problem in in like the basic idea of of carbon markets which includes the idea that like Um, you can, companies that, that emit, emit less and don't use up their carbon budget can like sell carbon credits and you can do this across international lines. And like, if we hold, if we hold companies to different like emissions standards internationally based on things like the Paris climate agreement, then that will cause the carbon credit system to work better. Um, there's that acknowledgement that it is an international problem. But again, I just don't, I don't see, I don't see evidence that it's working and they they that like none of the evidence that i i've read makes it seem like there's a very good case that this is going to at the very least that this is going to provide the kind of emissions reductions that are necessary to forestall the worst case scenarios that are coming um and if we're going to be again to be completely intellectually honest here we can talk about degrowth all day long um i have a similar problem with that that i do to a lot of these the 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 different kind of the targets that COP twenty uh, six introduced stuff like carbon markets, where it's like, I don't, I don't see that solving the problem either. It's like a theoretical. It's it's yeah. If we were to get people to, if if, if we've gotten people on board with degrowth, then you've already fundamentally shifted the very nature of global society um, and also the way in which Americans and people in other Western nations like conceive of economics at a fundamental level. Um, and so it's, it's one thing to say that like, yeah, if people accepted that and, and got on board with a a lifestyle that is not based on this, this kind of capitalist notion of endless growth of, of ever increasing extraction from the world in order to create value, um, then we could, we could actually stop emitting at the kind of levels that are going to lead to these horrible consequences. Um, the question is like, I, 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 I don't see a. I don't see you. You can. I think you can argue that degrowth is more realistic in that. Yes, that would absolutely work, as opposed to carbon credits and other things. Where it's like, well, theoretically, it might work if they do all this other stuff. Yeah, it does. It does, it does revolve. A path to
7: to it. it. It does revolve on the cultural notion of yeah. America and the West completely changing. Mm-hmm. Um.
5: It's a big it's a big ask, you
3: know? Yeah.
7: Um, and I mean like there is there is smaller steps like totally like yes. reorganizing how cities work so we do not use cars. Uh like like, like re redoing a public transportation um uh, like sector, uh in you know, um, Making, make, making like making uh, like solar panels and renewable energy a required part of like city infrastructure right there's there's a lot of ways to push us towards that thing but there's not one thing we can do right because it, it is in large parts a cultural change stuff stuff will help with emissions like if we if we redesign cities around public transportation and make it so stuff is not as as far yeah. apart then yeah that that's going to help lower emissions if we if we require all these other types of uh, renewable energy projects to be built into buildings and uh, added on to our current cities. And yeah, that, that is going to help lower emissions, but you know, there's, there's not one, one big step that we can all do at the same time.
5: And I, I think that that's, I don't know. It, I, I, I'm, I have two minds about it. One part of me says that's absolutely the, the most intelligent way to go about it is focusing on things like reducing the use of like, like, like really all ending car culture in cities
7: yeah. Because cool.
5: um, it's not even a reduction thing. It has to be like that, that has to die. Um, but we're a lot closer to that than ending the idea of like uh, <laughs> capitalism. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, because there, and number one, because there are capitalist, very capitalist countries that have, that do not have a car culture, that yeah. like stopped that and that actually like had one at one point and then reworked their. So that's, that's. And that would, yeah, that is a significant, that's probably, that would probably lead to larger emissions reductions than any kind of carbon credit system could ever lead to. Um, I also, and, and so, yeah, I think that that's on an objective level. Yeah, that's, it's smart to focus on stuff like that, where you're all, you are arguing for reducing growth. Uh, But you're also arguing it for like, hey, your life will be more pleasant if you live in a city where you can walk everywhere. And you're not at risk of getting run down by, you know, two ton trucks anytime you cross the street. And like you're not dealing with smog and pollution and horrible like hour and a half long commutes on these crowded nightmare highways. Um, But it's also it's still incrementalist, you know. Um, Absolutely. we, We are we are talking here. We are kind of like walking through here. Um, all of the, the best incremental solutions? And and what is the most realistic of those? Um, and I, I think that's fine. I think that's kind of where we have to be, because that is what's most likely to actually happen to make the problem better. Um, but it is, it, we have to acknowledge it is incremental, like we're not, we're not solving the, no. I mean, <laughs> it, would, it would be very arrogant to say, like, here's how we solve this problem once and for all, you know, I just want to, I think sometimes when you talk
9: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
5: About stuff like degrowth, you can get into this, you can kind of, it can come across as if you're trying to like simplify like and if we do this we'll, like it'll yeah. be perfect it's like no this would be like the hardest thing no we've that's ever had to
7: do that's like saying we have to can fix it by all doing a revolution it's like that's, yeah yeah it's it's not okay okay cool
12: <laughs> yeah i mean yeah that would fix it but
7: <laughs> anyway uh we have to do some ads and then we'll be back to finish yeah. up kind of their closing expectations on cop 26 and the other kind of things happening in the periphery um here's ads Okay, we are back, and we're talking about kind of what happened towards the end of COP26. So we already kind of discussed how the deal was made, what was in the deal, what things were talked about. Um, now we're kind of t- going to talk about, you know, the other kind of closing thoughts around it. Um, in, in 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 the lead-up to, to COP26, the uh, United States Special Presidential Climate uh, Envoy, uh, John Kerry, who's like, he's supposed to be like our climate guy. Um, he, he also said the goal of the summit was to was to you know hope that we can limit stuff to one point five degrees, and you know he he called this the last best hope for the world to get its act together. Uh, but by the time COP twenty six came to the end, his uh, language and attitude had kind of changed. Um, after after two weeks of debate and negotiation, his his final remarks reflected the, kind of the points we've been talking about. How um and 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 said like uh like g- the, the government energy policy is currently in place. Around the world, are projected to result in about 2.7 degrees uh, Celsius of warming above pre-industrial levels, and government pledges to cut climate emissions would limit warming to 2.4 if they are met. So that's again, we're just launching way past this like mythical fantasy of of 1.5 degrees. And the the other scary things is that we're getting a lot a lot closer to large scale feedback loops. Uh, feedback loops are things like once we have reached a certain degree of warming environmental effects will be triggered that will cascade and produce like exponential growth in warming this is like a this it, it's not purely theoretical but it is mostly stuff that we still probably can't prevent and we really need to get on it like asap because once these things start happening they are very hard to reverse one of the biggest ones that have that are already being affected is photosynthesis by plants on land and how that is Decreasing its ability to suck up carbon. Um, about thirty percent of our annual carbon emissions are uh, removed by the air by photosynthesis, um, and the, the rest of which are you know, dissolved in the ocean, causing ocean acidification, or that you just hang around in the atmosphere, which causes you know uh, a bigger thermal blanket. So uh, photosynthesis has like a thermal maximum beyond which carbon can only be taken. so so much of it in and then the process which by plants give off carbon and water actually increases and we are already at that point in a a lot of places and we are we are at that we we achieve the warming required to get to that point uh, a few times throughout the past decade so land-based carbon uptake is projected to decline by nearly 50 percent as early as 2040 and, and these effects have not been included in any of the, you know, published pathways leading to lower, like lower degrees of warming. Um, and again, this isn't this isn't just speculative. Like uh, the biggest example of this that we can like point to is like the Amazon rainforest, how that is now a net emitter uh, because it is no longer sucking up enough carbon to offset the amount of carbon it actually shoots out. So we need to stop deforestation and keep planting more trees, essentially, because uh, that that sucks. And also just as a general kind of indicator of the cascading effects that are happening. And we are we're still on the path for kind of large, large-scale large disasters in a lot of places around the world. Um, the, uh, it's around 19% of the Earth's uh, land area is in pretty pretty dire uh, risk on our current emission pathway, uh, the Marshall Islands, the Maldavis. Um, uh, Vietnam, Southeast Asia, Middle East, parts of North Africa, and Central America. Um, uh, uh, overall, around one third of the land humans occupied are predicted to either uh, drown by sea, by sea level rise or became or become too hot for human life just by the end of this c- century alone. So that that'll cause you know mi- migration panics and wars and all like a whole bunch of bad things that we can we can limit that like that is something that we need to limit now and if. We don't. It's still it's still happening. So th- these are the other kind of things talked about at the end. Um, so that was kind of COP twenty six as a whole. Uh, the one last thing I want to mention is just how evil Facebook is. Um, so <laughs> kind of kind of an aside, but um, F- Facebook's vice president of global affairs uh, uh, talked um, and uh, about. Facebook's efforts to combat climate misinformation um, as the Glasgow Summit uh, began. But as this was happening, uh, conservative media outlets like Newsmax were were running ads on Facebook calling uh, global warming a hoax gaining hundreds of thousands of views, stuff like, you know, Candace Owens and Daily Wire were spreading climate misinformation, but, and, you know, as as Facebook is bragging about its ability to, to combat misinformation around climate change. Um, the UK-based uh, think tank Influence Map, which identified misleading Facebook ads uh, from several media outlets um, uh, uh, around COP26, also found that fossil fuel companies and uh, lobbying groups spent uh, half a million dollars on political and social uh, issue Facebook Ads during the summit, uh, resulting in over 22 million impressions, including content that promoted uh, environmental effects under what we would call like greenwashing. Uh, Stuff like you know uh, the American Petroleum Institute putting putting an ad out over like a natural landscape as it like touts its efforts to tackle climate change. Um, So all all of that kind of stuff. So. I just think it's really dumb because Facebook brags about its ability to combat climate misinformation as it's running ads mm-hmm. saying climate change is a hoax and then doing g- general like green- greenwashing is more common but still it's yeah. frustrating. Um,
5: And, And yeah, just as a note, like we talk about this in the Facebook episodes of Astridge that dropped recently, but like the number one spreader right now of climate disinformation on Facebook is Breitbart, which a lot of the Facebook papers have gone on to like the extreme lengths Facebook executives went to keep Breitbart as one of their like trusted news partners and continue putting their stuff out to a huge audience because it goes very viral. It was good for engagement on the platform. And that's the decision Facebook's like whatever they say. This is, like, when, we, when we're when we talking about car, carbon credits, when we're talking about, like, the different proposed solutions, I'll do a bit of waffling because I don't want to come across as too certain about what the right way to go forward is. When it comes to how Facebook has handled climate disinformation, it's very black and white. Um, they enabled it for direct profit, and they talked about it, and people within the company were like, hey, we're deliberately enabling climate change misinformation in order to make more money. It's um, it's a it's a It's a very easy case to make
7: yeah so that wraps up my uh my report back on cop 26 uh i know a lot of a lot of stuff was like there's a there's a lot of headlines like before the summit even ended before the deal was even finalized it was like cop 26 is a failure which is like yes but i think i think it is worth actually relearning what happens at these things because i think we have this idea that they're like some like mythic secret gathering of people to discuss plans and it's like no like you can actually like See everything they're talking about. Like it's it's all yeah. out in the open. Like you can actually see what what the plans are. It doesn't mm-hmm. need to be all shrouded in. It, it, it doesn't need to be like shrouded in mystery. So I just wanted to give people like a rundown on what the actual people in power how they're discussing climate change and what their expectations are, and how you know expectations have you know, the past five years have risen by basically a degree, right? Because, like, mm-hmm. in, in 2015, we were like, we can do 1.5, and now we're like, we can do 2.5. Yeah. So that is what we've done in five years. That's what's happened. And um, I think
5: that's what justifies the kind of blanket pessimism about anything coming from COP26, about anything being suggested by, like, a state actor or an international organization, which is that, like, we've all watched the last 20 years. Like they've said a lot of great stuff about what could work. It's like that nature article about like, okay, well, like you've got a bunch of math here arguing about how it might work, but we've got the last 20 years of policies to say, but it probably won't. Right. But it's almost certainly not going to work. Right. So we, we can say like, yeah, theoretically this might be helpful, but like realistically nothing, everything you guys have argued about in the same way has been a miserable failure pretty much.
7: Well, uh, that that wraps it up for us uh hey. you, can follow, you can follow the show on twitter and apparently instagram um at happen here uh, pod it, yeah. and uh cool zone media uh we got a new cool zone media show dropping soon uh uh Corp. that's pretty exciting yeah check um, it out
5: it's about how we love
7: amazon and you should pay the money i don't think that's what it's about but anyway um opposite of that. yeah Shame. so buy some carbon offsets from amazon and with that, free. and with that, we're closing the show. <laughs>
0: Give us your attention, we need everything you got fast Waiting on reparations, we be the illest podcast
2: Tune in every Thursday, politics and wordplay We fight for the people cause they got us in the worst way
0: From the hill to Brazil, Bombay to Kanye
2: From the left enclave to what the neocons say
0: Every Thursday cop the heady conversation
2: And break us off with some bread cause we waiting waiting on on reparations reparations. Listen to Waiting on Reparations on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
4: The art world, it is essentially a money laundering business.
2: The best fakes are still hanging on people's
4: walls, you know. They don't even know or suspect that they're fakes.
1: I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is a podcast about deception, greed, and forgery in the art world. You knew the painting was fake. Um. Listen to Art Fraud starting February 1st on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or
2: wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Welcome back to It Could Happen Here, a show about how things are falling apart, or at least generally a show about how things are falling apart. Um... And how to you know maybe maybe not fall apart that much. But we have a we have a a little bit of a different episode for you today. A friend of a friend of mine reached out to me recently in the wake of a pair of episodes we did for Behind the Bastards on sexual abuse within the Boy Scouts of America, which was, if you're not aware, an endemic problem with uh, more than a hundred thousand victims having come forward in the last year alone. Um, and this is a case that kind of ties into that. Uh, it's it's the case of a young man. Um, who committed murder, and a young man who was also um, a victim of a a terrible series of crimes. So I wanted to kind of shine a little bit of light on the case of Heath Stocks today. Um, And to help me do that is Mr. Michael Kaiser. Michael, welcome to the show.
13: Uh, Good afternoon. Thanks for having me.
5: Uh, Michael, would you like to introduce kind of your affiliation with this case before we go over the broad strokes of it?
13: Sure. Um, Again, my name is Michael Kaiser. I'm a criminal defense attorney with the Lasseter and Casanelli firm in Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, This case started in the 90s, and I was – I'm 32, so I was not practicing then. I came into this case in the last two years um, after Heath has already uh, been sentenced to three life sentences – and I assisted him in filing a petition for a commutation asking for the governor of Arkansas to reduce those sentences to a term of years and giving him a chance of parole while he is still alive. And and can we, uh, let's go over kind of what happened in this case, the
5: basics, because this is this is a really sad story. Um, and it's one of those things where there's, there's not a lot of, I think, easy answers. But yeah, let, let, let's talk about sort of the broad strokes of what happened and then we can drill into what, what you're trying
13: to achieve here. Sure. Uh, so the broad strokes are back in 1997 um, when Heath was a young man, um, just 20 years old. Um, he was arrested and charged with killing uh, his entire immediate family, both his mother, father, um, and his younger sister. Uh, he he was quickly identified as the primary suspect, uh, questioned, confessed, arrested, charged, and within, uh, I believe, six months had pleaded guilty to all three capital murders and received a sentence of life uh, without parole for each, each one of those for a total of three life sentences. Um, shortly after he was convicted, um, it came to light that his longtime Boy Scout Scoutmaster, uh, Jack Walls um, had been molesting Heath since he was around age nine or ten. Um, that it was a, a serial sort of abuse. Yeah. That he that Heath was not the only one. Um, that it was particularly brutal, and that his abuse didn't just involve, you know, sexual acts. Um, it, it was kind of a long term. Uh, I hate to use the term brainwashing, but a lot of people have about what he did to those boys. Um Heats is not the only life that was ruined. Heath's family is not the only family's lives who were ruined. Um, but Heats is, is unfortunately the most extreme case um, where where he, he ultimately committed a crime against against his family. We'll get into the, the circumstances
5: in a second. I just wanted to add a little bit of clarification. The Scoutmaster, we're looking at between a hundred and a hundred and fifty victims, kind of conservatively based on what I've been reading. Yes. Yeah, uh, and it's it's some of – I mean it's it, – so this guy – some of it's the stuff that you heard in a lot of these other cases. Some of it is, is very unique to this guy, but he would basically – he would have people over cam- – kids over camping on his land. Um, he would take them shooting. He worked for an ammunition company. Um, he would molest them. He would also like purchase prostitutes for them, and it was this um, – I mean a lot of, of really – some of the worst abuse that i've read about in connection to any of these these boy scout sexual abuse cases um it's it's pretty harrowing stuff when you read the stories of other kids um who were kind of in the same position that heath was
13: yeah unfortunately you're you're correct it's you know every time you think this can't get worse or this case is so extreme that you find some other element that's more offensive more appalling more victims more more families ruined down the line even um, today 30 40 years 50 years later mm-hmm.
5: yeah so how does the the because I mean one of the things about this is this is a pretty the initial crime here is is pretty horrific um, and I think it's it's one of those things where it is hard to have a lot of sympathy for Heath until you kind of learn about what this guy like his, the, his his role in the crime, because it was not just a case of, um, you know, a kid committing murder. It was a case of a kid being um, very deliberately pushed into committing murder. And, and potentially, I think the, the, there's the allegations being made are that he was he directly uh, helped with it as well.
13: Yes. Um, so, you know, at first glance, yeah, it looks it looks really bad for Heath. Um, but over the years um, what we have learned is that what what really happened is that Heath had been serially abused sexually physically emotionally and otherwise by Jack for a period of 10 plus years um, he, his mother discovers the abuse and discusses it with uh, her her pastor another religious counselor uh, he, Heath informs Jack that you know his mother is aware and and Jack instructs Heath to do as he's been taught um, and, and and to kill the problem. Um, Jack was never convicted with anything associated with the death of of the Stocks family. Um, However, his first set of life sentences for the many um, assaults that he was convicted of, um, when they were reversed, it was because the judge in that that sentencing hearing said, you know, the, the death of the Stocks family is also on your hands. And because he hadn't been formally convicted of that, he actually had his original life sentences reversed, at resentencing, he got essentially the same sentence—multiple life sentences and additional years. Um, but yes, there there's there is a connection. Um, it wasn't known at the time, or at least it wasn't publicized. And if if it had been, I think the results of Heath's case would be very different. I don't think you and I would be speaking right now.
5: Yeah, and it's—I mean, obviously, like this is this is this is a, a thoroughly horrible situation, um, and. When somebody commits three murders, I think even people who are very critical of the criminal justice system should agree that, like, something needs to be done. But I, it just seems so unfair to lock this kid up for his entire life without kind of and, – and, and acting as if this was just a thing he did on his own rather than kind of the result of a pretty horrific – I mean, one of the most one of the most horrific patterns of of abuse and exploitation of a of a child that I can imagine, um, and I, I don't know I don't know what would actually like help uh, other than getting him into a situation where he's not spending the rest of his life in a prison cell. Like I don't know what the long term for him looks like in terms of rebuilding this guy's potential to have a life, but it it certainly starts with him not spending the rest of that life. In a jail cell,
13: the problem we've encountered um, with Heath's case is the parole board, and many just even just people that encounter the case wonder why would he attack and kill you know his immediate family rather than his abuser. Yeah. And in the twenty-five plus years, or in the twenty-five uh, years or so since this happened, I mean, w- juvenile. The, our understanding of the juvenile brain, neuropsychology neuropsych- in general, um, ha- has has come le- leaps and bounds. And so we know that a serially abused child has brain damage from really about the time that that starts happening. And so in Heath's crazy world, uh, and, and we do have this in our clemency application, we've had um, uh, abuse specialists evaluate Heath and, and see how he, you know his actions conform to, to our current understanding within the crazy world that he lived in, he actually was making, uh, dare I say, the reasonable decision. So Jack had demonstrated numerous times over the years he has physical, sexual, and, and even control over Heath's life. He can end it at any time. He explicitly and implicitly threatens the boys all the time. He's got weapons everywhere. He's a Vietnam veteran. He brings them out to his property, shows them how to shoot, shows them what he will do to those who you know go against him. Um, so within Heath's world, he actually made a somewhat reasonable decision. He, uh, the, the bigger threat was was Jack. Um, he can't kill Jack, so he has to do the thing to appease Jack to avoid the more severe abuse. That's oversimplifying it, but that's something that I don't think we would have been able to conceptualize back in the '90s. You add the element of there's it's it's male on male, and we're talking about a very small rural community um in central arkansas and that element cannot be overlooked at all as well that was a huge thing that jack was counting on to keep these boys silent um he explicitly told them if you tell what happened to you they're going to think that you are homosexual and a liar so uh, yeah. there's just there's there's just so many horrible things um in this case Jack had decades of experience doing this, and unfortunately, because of his position in the community, the son of a prominent judge, um, the longtime scoutmaster, the community's uh, man of the year multiple times, um, he had access to dozens and dozens of boys, in fact, entire generations of these of these boys in Lono County. Um, Heat's case is just one of many. Unfortunately, it's the most extreme case, and it kind of tests the bounds of our mercy, but... Uh, the The kid that discovered jack uh while he 's a hero ultimately he killed himself uh, and he 's not the only one so Unfortunately, the stocks family are not the only people who lost their lives and not the only people whose lives, just like he 's were completely destroyed um by jack walls
5: yeah and this is this is an important thing to understand because when we 're talking about kind of the the lingering impacts of childhood sexual abuse, it can take a wide variety of forms and when we like but but it but it is important to understand that the, the damage it can do goes so much further beyond like the physical damage done by the abuse. Like these are your your brain is still forming and growing when you're that young. And Heath this is one manifestation of kind of what can happen um at the more extreme end, admittedly, um, as as the result of like this is why it's such a heinous crime to abuse a child in this way. And it's just I don't know like you're right it is it is it it tests the limit of um people's capacity for I don't know forgiveness seems like the wrong word but like clemency you know this again is is a, is a pretty heinous crime um but at the same time I I can't bring myself to think that Th- what he endured leading up to this shouldn't have an impact on what happens to him afterwards, right? Like it, it does, it does reduce his his complicity in this, and I I just feel it feels so wrong to say that like, well, he should spend the rest of his life uh, behind a, a bars. Like that's just not. I can't imagine anything could, could help. Like I can't imagine that could help in any way. Um, just writing this this person off. Uh, forever, I don't know. It just is, it's, it's
13: fucked. What are the next steps for y'all for your, for the defense team? So at this point, we've already filed a petition uh, with the Arkansas governor requesting a commutation. That's not a pardon. That's not something saying, say yeah. that Heath is innocent. We're asking the governor to modify his sentences to a term of years, 40 years in each case to be served concurrently. So in effect, one single Sentence of 40 years. So um we in do Ar-
5: another 15? Yeah. Uh,
13: well, in Arkansas, you're actually, uh, at the time he was convicted, he'd be parole eligible at 70%. So that's 28 years. That's not a guarantee of parole. That is just sure. what it means, parole eligibility. So that's what we've asked for. Um, we think his institutional record speaks for itself. And if and when he is a candidate for parole, he, he hopefully uh, will make parole. He, he's, he's done everything within his power um, to do so. Um, If this fails, it's right now uh, we in Arkansas, it first goes to the parole board who makes a non-binding recommendation to the governor. They have recommended that the governor uh, deny it, um, which is unfortunate. But again, it's not binding. Um, The governor now has, I believe, until February or March of 2022 to issue his decision. Um, He has not yet. Um, we have requested a sit down with the governor. I don't know if we'll actually sit down with Governor Asa Hutchinson. We will sit down with his criminal justice coordinator. Um, we're thankful and lucky to have the support of all of the remaining victims' family members. So both sides of Heath's family, um, you know, we have we have extensive support. Um, it wasn't they they a lot of them had to work to the, to get to this point a lot of them had to understand the true impact of the abuse but at this point um we have extensive support from both sides of his family um as far as we know there are no objections to his uh commutation application from from victims family members the only ones that there have been are from the sentencing judge uh or from the sentencing court, it's actually not the same judge and the sentencing or, or the prosecutor from that from that county. Again, a different person, um, but they they felt the need to object. Yeah. Uh, it, sh- should this fail, we will seek additional post conviction remedies. Um, uh, in Arkansas, we have something called a petition for writ of error coram nobis. Um, you can file it. You have to ask the Supreme Court. Hey, is it okay if I file a petition back in the trial court asking them to consider? Something that, if we had known back in 1997 and 98, would have affected the outcome of the litigation. In this case, we would point to the we, we've had Heath evaluated. Um, and we'll point to that neuropsychological evaluation um, as as new evidence. Um, we couldn't fully make a a connection at the time between his abuse and and the offense. To answer that question, why he he killed his family rather than his abuser. We, we now can, and so that's what we're going to allege is that is that new evidence um whether the court will will find that it is um, remains to be seen when Heath tried this on his own about five years ago, the court denied it. he alleged the new evidence was uh the fact of the long term sexual abuse of him by Jack walls, and the court in a in an opinion that really does not um you know, shows shows the lack of understanding of long-term juvenile sexual abuse, found that, well, no, you personally were aware of all of that in your own mind because it had happened to you. So that was not new evidence. And, I mean, we know that the average uh, male who makes this sort of disclosure, it occurs deep into adulthood. So yeah. it, it's just at every level of the system, even today, we're still feeling the effects of kind of that old-school mentality about about this, and it's unfortunate. We could talk about kind of the the carceral state and this idea
5: that like penalty is the way to respond to any kind of crime, but even if you believe that, even if you believe that like you have to punish people with incarceration when they commit crimes, he's done 25 years like that's and no no one is discussing the possibility of Heath not being punished for the murder you know because it's he has been not just with time behind bars but with the fact that his family's gone the idea that the state could do anything that's worse to him than than the scoutmaster did to be honest is kind of absurd in my head but um where is there anything that like I don't know. I'm trying to determine like what can be done to help in this situation. Is there any way people can actually help outside of like you and the team that's that's working to try and sit down with the governor?
13: Uh, Yeah, Um, I mean, public support is is wonderful. The more people that are pointing out the problems in Heath's case and with his sentences and that are reaching out to the governor, um, the better we think our chances are. Um, I I apologize, I don't have the email address on me, but the governor has several publicly accessible um, accounts, as does his criminal justice coordinator. Even just getting on Facebook um, and and bringing it up, Um, there's a Facebook account managed by one of Heath's friends um, in Florida called At Hope for Heath Stocks. Um, There's also a website. I think it's hopeforheatstocks.info. It's probably the most extensive trove of resources in this case. It has almost all original documents. It's where I still go to access things when I need them, even though, you know, I I am his attorney. So there's a lot out there. There's a lot of ways to support the cause, even just telling other people about it. Um, We do have a documentary in the works. Um, I, I actually don't think it has a producer at this point, but we're hopeful to have something out in early 2022 to make Keith, to make Jack, to make this case more of a household name. Um, The hopes that, you know, if any sort of, um, you know, if there's more support out there, more pressure on the governor, uh, it'll increase the odds that that he'll do the right thing here. Yeah, I mean, this shouldn't be a political issue. This shouldn't be a
5: left or a right thing. Like, everyone should be able to see this is a this is the result of of abuse and that should have an impact on the what we actually what's actually what our society actually does to this kid in the wake of the crime perhaps it's like foolish to hope for some sort of rationality in 2021 um as regards a case like this but i would hope that we could be rational about this and everyone agree uh, yes this kid deserves something more than what he's gotten um i don't know
13: it's 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 a bleak one though (laughs) that's putting it lightly new york recent recently passed a law that kind of acknowledged kind of where you're at with it for victims of domestic or sexual abuse who then committed crimes um that weren't necessarily during the course of that specific abuse Um, And it allowed people like Heath to apply for resentencing if they met certain statutory qualifications um, for things that mitigated their crime, didn't justify it, but that didn't come out originally. Unfortunately, in Arkansas, we don't have a similar process. The only thing we have available is this clemency commutation process. And unfortunately, as you said, it should be apolitical, but it's not. It's it's explicitly political. The parole board are all appointees by our governor. The Governor is an elected official. There's a reason we filed it in the last year of his last term in Arkansas. He is term limited, so we're trying to get him at a point where he's as free from the politics to do what he actually thinks is is correct, but to think that politics will be removed is i mean yeah it, that, it never is
5: no this is and, this is the United States in the twenty twenties you know politics and, is
13: is a factor here. And this well, is a, a deeply divisive case in the state and especially in Lono County. Well, it's hard. I can imagine it being hard to talk with people
5: about just because, again, the nature of the crime is is horrific. And so if you talk about like, well, we, we think this guy should have another chance at life and you're like, well, but he killed three people. He killed his sister. And yes, that is the case, but that's not the only thing going down here. And you just have to... I think if you're if you're at all even if you're not coming at this from kind of politically where I am in regarding, you know, the 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 Carceral State, you have to acknowledge that like this does not erase Heath's crimes, but Heath's crimes were also the result of not just the scoutmaster's abuse, but of a, a number of failures on a, on a wide level in our society that allowed that abuse to occur. Um and so I don't know. I I, I feel like there's a, a lot of reasons why it behooves us to to give this kid another chance. I don't know. That doesn't make it easier to convince anyone else, but
13: yeah. Well, how would this case play out if it happened today versus in 1997, even in a more rural part of Arkansas? I think our understanding of several of the issues here has come so far that my hope is Heath would have received a term of years rather than being charged with capital murder. They— Originally, we're seeking the death penalty and he made a deal for multiple life sentences, both as someone under 21 and as a victim of long term sexual abuse. I would like to think that if this happened today, even in that county, what we're asking for is something close to what what would what would happen. You would um, hope. Yeah, I would hope so. That That's why, again, we didn't ask for a pardon. We didn't ask. Let him out today. We said let him earn it. Let him still feel the weight of of what he has done, but give him that light at the end of the tunnel because, you know, there is no one in the Arkansas Department of Correction, even uh, with the—there's just not a victim like him there, and there's not someone who, who could be an advocate for victims like him were he to be released. So,
5: Yep. Well, all right, Michael. Is there anything else you wanted to get
13: into with this or any other ways people might be able to help? Check out the website again. Yeah, post on social media. Um, uh, The one thing I I think we didn't focus on here is Heath himself. Um, Heath is a deeply spiritual individual. He's someone who lives with this on his conscious almost every moment of the day. This is not not someone who you know feels he skated by by avoiding the death penalty. Um, This is someone who has had to learn about trauma mostly on his own because with those life sentences, he is ineligible for so many of the programs, of the scant programs and resources that we have in the Department of Correction because they don't give it to people who don't have parole dates. So he's had to do a lot of this on his own. He's come a remarkable way. He's still someone that needs um, probably extensive treatment and therapy to deal with his own trauma as well as to deal with the effects of what he did on himself. Um, But he's a remarkable individual. He's a great self-advocate. I wish you could speak with him as well. Um, He's someone I'm proud to represent, not just that I do because I I get paid. Um, This is why I got into the practice of law, is this type of case. Um, He is not innocent, but he is not Uh, he, he should not be bearing the full weight of what occurred while, you know, Jack is serving a life sentence. I I think he should have one or two or three more for his role in this. I mean, Heath's youth and Heath's brain damage because of that sexual abuse should have and now should be considered. And we just hope the governor will.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully so. And again, if you want to learn more, there's heathstocks.info, um, there's a lot of good about Jack Walls uh, on there as well, um, and you can. There's a, a link to make a donation uh, to Heath's defense. Um, all right, well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on today, um, and I hope you have a good rest of your week. Yeah, you as well. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe.
7: It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly
10: at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening.
1: Make sure to check out Drink Champs, your number one music podcast on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Hosts N-O-R-E and DJ E-F-N sat down with artist and icon Ye, which Vulture called one of 2021's most significant interviews.
9: I literally had to go like Thanos and I don't want to have to be the villain. But when I went and did the Donda thing, Ye returned and everybody had to sit back and watch the real leader. Check
1: out Drink Champ's conversation with Ye and many more legendary artists each and every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. When P.T. Barnum's Great American Museum burned to the ground in 1865, what rose from its ashes would change the world. Welcome to Grim and Mild presents an ongoing journey into the strange, the unusual, and the fascinating. In our inaugural season, we'll give you a backstage tour of the complex and unusual artifact that is the American Sideshow. Listen to Grim and Mile Presents now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country.